Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Starting Line Podcast with me, Rich Lee. Today, I'm speaking to such an accomplished and prolific ultra-endurance athlete, he genuinely once forgot that he'd run across Iceland, not the supermarket. Alongside the ultra-endurance challenges he's tried and accomplished, Sean Conway, born in 1981, has been the subject of documentaries aired on Discovery and Amazon Prime, and he's an author and a motivational speaker. He was born in Zimbabwe in April 1981, making him 42 years of age. And as I say in the interview, I find it weird telling people back things they already know about themselves during it, so I'm just going to list a few highlights of what Sean's done for you right here. So, multiple world record holder Sean has cycled the length of Britain. He sailed the length of Britain. He swam the length of Britain. He cycled across Europe. He's run the length of Britain. Of course he has. He cycled from London to the Alps. Another time, he cycled around the world. And in perhaps his biggest challenge yet, and believe me, I've genuinely not even listed half of them, Sean recently broke the world record for the most consecutive Ironman triathlons in a row. He did an Ironman every single day for 105 days. Now, I contextualize this in the interview with some actual figures, but I'll tell you here too. That means Sean swam 2.4 miles, and then after that swim, he cycled 112 miles. And then after that cycle, he ran a marathon. And he did that every day. For 105 days. Ridiculous. (laughs) I visited Sean in the beautiful rural North Wales where he lives with his wife Caroline and their two young children. I was flying solo though. I was without Eddie, producer Eddie. 
starts with us, um, with me just hopefully making sure that I've done the right thing, put the cables in the right places and turned all the right knobs. I don't know. I think we did the right thing. We chatted about life, his accomplishments, his drive, and believe me, there are not many people with a bloody and single-mindedness Sean has. Oh, and we speak about the challenge that got away. The 2009 Gloucester Cheese Roll, where if you haven't seen about cheese rolling, it's where people run slash fall slash break their legs down a 1-1 hill chasing a rolling cheese. Go on, tell me that you don't still hear the hurt in his voice, the poor, poor man. Maybe that's why he's doing all of this. He came, I don't want to ruin it too much, but he came second and he maintains the person that won cheated. All in all, this is an incredible interview with an incredible man. Somebody that's done things that most of us can only, I was going to say dream of. Lots of people don't dream of this sort of thing. Sean, you're a different human being. <laughs> As he said, he's, he's very, very good at the long stuff. There aren't too many people that are going to challenge that record too soon. Although Sean welcomes it. This isn't the interview where you're going to hear all about his diet and sleep and every single aspect of how he did the 105. This is more of a a look at who he is. Who is the man that is Sean Conway? It is just a, a look at his life, what turned him into this ultra endurance athlete and his mindset, which again, is incredible. So thank you so much for your support, love, and appreciation for Mike McCarthy, the co-founder of The Battle of Hope, last episode. It's an incredibly powerful, as I say, an important conversation to be having, talking about suicide and The Battle of Hope being the suicide prevention program that it is, the UK's biggest suicide prevention program. I just thought that it was important that we have that kind of conversation too. Anyway, go back, listen, and also, I mean, this is episode 10. Can you believe it? Episode 10. We're almost done with the first series. So if you're just joining us now and Sean has brought you to this little old podcast, we've been charting most weeks. We've had some incredible guests. And if you scroll back down, subscribe, listen to any and all. Really proud of what we've put together so far. But that's everything we need to say up top. I think I'll be back with plugs and social things and all that good stuff after the episode. But for now, without further ado, I bring to you my conversation with Sean Conway. I guess when you've done any of your other around the world things, by the way, we're recording now, so we'll... Yeah, Eddie, I hope this is good, man. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie, he put the red cable on the right. Sorry, bro. Is that good? Is that good? Hang on, let's just check audio quality. Um, can you tell me uh, what time did you get up this morning? Uh, I got up pretty late this morning. Six o'clock. Six o'clock. Six. What, what time's normal? 5.29. Of course it is. Yeah, uh, 5.29. But, um, we are going through a new sleep protocol with the boys. Because okay. they're, they're just, it's, we've, it's been too long now. They're, they're crap sleepers and we just we kept saying for years now oh they'll get better they'll get better they'll get better i think we've we've, we're broken now so caroline and i this week (laughs) literally i've decided this a few weeks ago right monday new sleep is that them going down earlier and then no just being more strict with them overnight basically the problem is they both wake up about four or five times a night still yeah caroline was up three times we've separate we've now in different rooms so that i can deal with our eldest yes in 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 the, the main room in our bedroom 
and then Caroline's in with the youngest in his bedroom. So that, because what happens is like, they would wake up each other. One away, one away the other yeah. 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 Were so they now, in the same? Were they in the same room before? No, no. no but they just scream so, across them. Yeah. The youngest was still feeding overnight, so he would be in the next to me bed, and then he would come in the night every night, and then they'd wake up. And he was just shattered. He was just shattered. The older one. So now, now when he gets up and he comes through, I sort of take him back to bed and try and explain to him that if he wants to grow big and strong, he has to sleep all night in his own bed because everyone else does it. His cousins do it, and and you'll sleep better, and you know, blah blah blah. And he's sort of getting the idea. How does that work in terms of what do you call them? Do you call challenges, adventures, events? Yeah, I mean they, they tend to get called adventures, but I'm not. I always I cringe at the word adventurer and adventures. Yeah. Yeah, challenges. Yeah, records. Records. They all got records attached to them, mostly. Um, otherwise, just personal challenges. I guess you've had your kids in the last few years mm. where you, you, you did loads and loads. I mean, you've done so many since 2012. We were saying you've done so many in 2009 in the cheese rolling. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's my certificate. There it is. At the bottom there. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> second place. Damn it. You came second. Was it to that kid that wins every year? So there's five races. He was in the first race. Right. And then I got in the second race because you have to queue up super early. Like I was queuing at 8am for a midday start right. and got in the second race. The third race is girls only. All the races is anyone. So I think girls and boys can do any of them, but, yeah. but it's mainly men. It's cheese rolling because it's a stupid idea. Then the middle one's girls only and then five and four and five is anyone again. And then they still carry on the races, but there's no cheese after that. And right. I wanted to get one with the cheese because you win the cheese if you come first. Anyway, so the guy who always wins wasn't in my race, but the guy who did win false started which oh, I'm so annoyed like because they go, they go three two one and on one they roll the cheese and then on go you're meant to go so the cheese has a head start and he went with the cheese he went with the cheese and i'm stood there going what you should see there's a youtube clip i'm like <laughs> 20 meters behind him because i stupidly in that moment of panic i was like are they going to tell him to come back and we're going to restart the race i was like of course they're not the cheese is gone man <laughs> so well, at least 14 years later you're not resentful yeah, or upset about this <laughs> yeah no it's the only one i'd never do again really yeah i'd do all of them again i live in gloucester and i've never done it and i'd never do it yeah i don't know why somebody would why why it's would crazy. you i don't know i was at that it was 2009 i was that sort of how old are you then so you're, you're 42 was, now right? yeah i was so. 28 i guess this may bank holiday april may yeah, so i sort of just turned 28 was it after a few or was this complete? And actually, eight o'clock in the morning, you're, you're so this isn't yeah. a drunken decision. This is a no, no, I, I decided weeks before because my mum lives in Cheltenham, so I'd seen the hill a million times. Yeah, just was like, right, well, I've got to, got to have a crack, got to have a crack at it. It's so steep. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, I've stood at the bottom of it. I've stood at the bottom of it looking up. I mean, is it a one-one? I think it's, it's, it's more than a one-one at the top. Yeah. So it starts best. off almost vertical. Like the first bit, you're up there and you're like, this is a war. Like, this is just vertical. And then it's sort of near the end, tapers out a bit. But um, That's funny. That the only yeah. one you'd never do again. You got injured, didn't you? Yeah. So I, I ruptured the capsule in my shot, left shoulder and then tore some back muscles. Yeah, but the shoulder was bad. Like, that was two years before I had full mobility on that. And it's still, I can still feel it now. And my left shoulder is really bad, especially for swimming. I just have a terrible stroke in like that. So I'm right side dominant, which then leads to a whole host of other issues <laughs> which is annoying but so, sort of nothing i can do about it your mum lives in cheltenham and you grew up in zimbabwe i was born in zimbabwe and i did grow up there a little bit but i moved to south africa quite when i was quite young and then spent most of my memorable childhood years in south africa all right so you're, are your folks zimbabwean 
My parents are Zimbabwean, my grandparents on my dad's side are Zimbabwean, mum's side are English. Great grandparents on dad's side are Irish. When did you move to South Africa? Uh, early 80s, so I don't remember the year. 84 maybe right so you'd have been like three yeah i was very young so do you have memories of zimbabwe yeah because we used to go back every year for holiday oh cool so, so family's still there yeah lots of family and they still are my cousins who are my age are still there what prompted the move without trying to get too political but when mugabe came into power things got difficult very quickly for certain types of people farmers are one of them we weren't farmers um, but the other thing that got difficult was my dad worked for national parks and mugabe saw the national parks sort of even though they're government yeah they were still full of people from the old the old days <laughs> he saw them as an army because they were all armed you know so my dad and all his rangers you can imagine having this meeting you know like someone had a like did you know there are five thousand people working for parks if they decided to join an army or start an army they could overthrow us and they've got lots of guns and things so he just made life difficult for for, for park rangers we lived on the Zambezi River, and Zambia was on the other side. And because Mugabe gave power to a lot of people who who wanted the British out, basically, it was sort of a free for all. You know, like my dad'd be sitting, and you just be like they'd do pot shots at his house of AK forty seven, just to try and just scare for fun because <laughs> they could because they knew no one would come after them anymore. Were you there at the time? So that was like a couple of years before I was born. Dad's house got torpedoed. Torpedoed. Yeah, like someone just had a freaking torpedo gun and just shot the house. He wasn't there, luckily. He came home one day. There was a hole in the wall. Built a bomb, bomb shelter under the house just in case. There was landmines being put around in the game reserve and stuff. Like, I remember there was, again, just before I was born, but I, I don't know where they were from, but it, it was just a tourist visit, like, going, looking for animals in the game reserve, went over a landmine. So there was that. And then, what I do remember, though, is we had grenade screens on our windows. So we had, so a grenade screen, you can still open the window. So it's just a box with with heavy fencing to stop grenades getting thrown through your window and then we also had but we never really used them but we used to have bullet screens so they used to they're thick armored plated steel which you would fold up from the bottom of the window so that when you were sitting down on the sofa someone who wanted to shoot you you know your head was below this armored screen and then the daytime so it wouldn't cover the whole window mm. just half the window and then the daytime you fold it back down but uh, so i remember those but i don't we, i don't remember ever having them up i guess if if people are getting shot at and getting grenades thrown at them and, and things like that then people did die and oh god yeah yeah we had it was bad you know it was bad you know again without getting too political the, the british government when they gave power to the zimbabwean people in 1966 i'm gonna get this wrong but nothing changed. They all stayed in government. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, we're, we've got independence now. But they all, all the British, like, just sort of stayed in government. So obviously the, the Zimbabweans were like, well, well, this is not good. And then that was the warfare that happened, you know. And then eventually the, the sort of the white British government said, yeah, you're probably right. You guys, you should have your country you back. You keep going. You know, on. yeah, here's your country back because you deserve it because we stole it from you 200 years ago like the British did everywhere else. And yes, and, and, and even I remember my dad even telling me afterwards, he's like, I don't know why they just didn't give it to them in 66. Yeah. Like it would have stopped a hell of a lot of bloodshed and animosity and resentment and everything. So anyway, 81, so 80 came along. Mugabe was made, went into power. And everyone thought he was great, actually. Really? Yeah. Even, you know, like he was young and like, well, oh, we're going to bring Zimbabwe, the, you know, to the new age and whatever. But then he went mad and... Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Yeah. So it's... But, you know... Depends who you ask, really. And I, I agree. I, I think he was an awful person. 
However, there's a lot of people who probably who've benefited from him being in power. You know, people who were enslaved to the British for hundreds of years and their families lost land and stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite sort of, I'm not very emotional mm. about talking about it. I, you know, I know the facts. There was some British did some bad stuff yeah. to the whole world, but also Mugabe and his government also did some very bad stuff. So, do you have siblings? Yeah, I got a sister. Yeah, sister She's younger than me, so. two and a half years younger. So she was. So I think that instigated the move. I think my mom was pregnant again. She's like, I'm not bringing up a daughter, or you know, in this environment where just life was difficult. And where did um, you move in South Africa then? So we moved to some game reserves. Where did we move first? False Bay, then Ndumu. Then we spent most of my childhood that I can remember because then I was f- five or six in Shishlui and Umfalozi game reserves up on the east coast, up towards Mozambique. And it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It. yeah. Did you feel the racial tensions that were? No, not in South Africa. No, no, because we lived in 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 Zululand. We were heavily sort of embedded into the Zulu culture. I spoke Zulu. I, f- I felt Zulu. Pardon me. I genuinely. I felt. Pardon me. Do you still I spoke, remember Zulu? Sort of. Like I can. I can understand people who talk it, but I've lost the vocab now. It'll come back. Right. Pretty quickly. But uh, yeah, I'd get better marks at Zulu than the Zulu kids at my school, you know, because I could write it and read it and stuff, whereas they could, they only just ever spoke it. Um, and also they probably didn't try, try <laughs> because they're like, this is my language. I don't need to work. <laughs> so your dad essentially did the same job. Back in Identical South job, yeah. So he's a, he's a rhino and elephant conservationist. Um, oh, okay. So mainly focusing on those two species, mainly rhino, because they need the most help. Elephants don't really need that much help. And what did your mum do? So she, she worked also within the game park. So they got divorced when I was 10, by which time I was shipped off to African farm school. So, because <laughs> there's no schools near us in the game reserve. So you had to sort of just. Was that, uh, you stay at the school? Yeah, boarding school. It was a boarding school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's no option. And in fact, m- almost all schools in South Africa are boarding. They were at the time. Oh, okay. Because they're so far away from, from anywhere. Like, you know, if they had to be not boarding, they'd get no, <laughs> they'd get no kids because, <laughs> yeah, they're out in the, in the sticks. So. And are your folks still with us? Yeah, yeah, my mum's in Cheltenham still, my dad's in South Africa, uh, my sister's still in South Africa. Do you get over much? Try to. It's um, cost prohibitive going over just to see my dad, really, So and my sister, of course, but uh, so I'd rather get him to come here, to be fair. And I guess your grandkid, or his grandkids being here, it's easier for him, one well, person, exactly. to travel. I'd rather yeah. pay for his flight to come over than for, than four for of us you. now, you know, so. And the, and the kids are too young to appreciate Africa, so we want to sort of do a proper job of it. Yeah. Maybe in like six or seven years' time when they can remember. When did your mum move to Cheltenham? And why Cheltenham? She got a job there. She's a carer. She was a live-in carer for the elderly. And uh, there was an agency there. So she moved in 2002, similar time to when I moved here. Right, okay. So you you came not long after, same time. So Yeah, so we all, we sort of all, because we all were just going to come for a bit. I came first, I think, in the February. My sister came a few months later. My mom's, My mum came a few months later. All just to like, you know, spend a year earning, earning pounds and then take it back to Africa type thing. And then we all sort of got stuck. My sister then moved back about 10 years ago. Yeah, so that was 2002. Yeah, and then she landed in Cheltenham and she's been there ever since. Yeah. So <laughs> when you came, you didn't go straight to Cheltenham, did you? I think you went to Cambridge. Yeah, literally. So I'd already, I had no money. So I sold everything I had to buy the flight to London. Why? Uh, why, why? I mean, were you not happy in South Africa? Like, What made you want to come over? So when I finished high school, I was into photography, and then I went to a photography college for a one-year intense course, so five days a week, 
sort of 9 a.m. to 1 o'clock lecture or 12 o'clock lectures, 1 o'clock to 5 o'clock practical, five days a week. So none of the sort it's of uni lot. where it's, it's like yeah. one or two hours a week, you know. Uh, one year course. And then I stayed on for a second year being an assistant lecturer at the college. And then after that year, I was like, right, well, now it's time to be a working photographer, I guess. And um, at the exact same time, because our years run January to December, uh, all my mates who decided to take a gap year from school and do a, the two-year thing in the UK. So you could come and you got it at that time. I don't know what the rules are now, but aren't you pretty sure you got a two-year work, work right. visa. But anyway, after two years, you get kicked out. And they were all on South African passports and they were coming home going, oh my God, I've just spent two years in the UK. It was amazing. I got to travel all over Europe and earning pounds and blah, 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 blah. I was like, oh, I wonder, really? Can it be that good? So, And I have an Irish passport. So I was like, well, I've just got this Irish passport. Nothing's stopping me going. And I was like, well, let me just go and see what they were talking about. You know, like, finished my studies. I need to get a job. So I've worked out that there was this cabbage or a salad making factory in Cambridgeshire <laughs> in Ely. Again, had no money. So, so, yeah, sold everything to buy the ticket. I had 100 quid left over. I remember got to Heathrow early, caught the tube into Victoria, found Victoria Coach Station, jumped on a coach for 20 quid or whatever it was to 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 Ely then caught a taxi I remember being six quid and going oh my god that's the most expensive taxi I've ever taken in my whole life <laughs> six quid to the farm got to the farm at around one o'clock in the afternoon and my shift started at three o'clock that afternoon right wow not even time just yeah. drop your bags and just living in dorms but you're traveling you know I was 20 yeah whatever. it's great right yeah why Cambridge though were you thinking it's kind of close enough to London from no, a photography just perspective or was. just that's where the job that's was where, when I looked at a bit of, done a bit of research on what type of jobs I could get from South Africa you know you got to find companies that are willing to hire South Africans right okay basically um, the Irish passport helped a bit but um, yeah they were all catered for for employing foreigners basically so right. in this factory was probably 80% Bulgarians right, and okay. 20% South Africans for whatever reason no idea Absolutely no idea. What, why photography? I guess if if your dad is a rhino and elephant um, specialist, you've probably seen some pretty incredible things from yeah, from a young age. Exactly that. So I guess did, is that what took you to photography and thought um, other people need to see this? No, I just I don't know. So well, I'll tell you what it was. At school, there was this kid called Cameron Barnes. He had a, a crappy little. It was basically a disposable camera, but you could change. You could put new film in it. Right. And it looked like a camera. So it was this black box with a lens thing, but it had no exposure or shutter or anything. All you could change on the front dial was if it was sunny, cloudy, or dark. Right. Okay. So you had a sort of a three exposure settings on the front, and that was it. Nothing else. No focusing, no nothing. But it looked like a real camera. I remember him getting it, and then months later, I was like, Cameron, what are you doing with... You remember that camera you had? It looked cool, man. What, what are you doing with it? He said, oh, I don't know. It's in my drawer somewhere. I said, I'll swap you for a bag of sweets. And I had this bag of sweets. And he's like, yeah, go on then. So I gave him the bag of sweets and he gave me this camera. And I was like, cool. Bought a roll of film. I just went and just took some pictures. Like, well, whatever. I don't know. I wasn't really thinking much, but I I was sort of obviously captivated by this, the idea somehow. How old are you at this point? 11. Right. But there was zero interest in career of it. I just liked the idea. And I remember I took some pictures and I sent them off to... You uh, you take them to the pharmacy. I don't know if that was a thing in the UK. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So same in South Africa. You went to the farm. I don't know why pharmacy. No, God knows. No, no, no. Why that was the thing. But anyway, took it to the pharmacy. They would send it off wherever they sent it. And it took about two weeks. And I remember it came back. And I remember the pharmacy nurse going, wow, Sean, those are really good pictures. And that was it. 
They just took some random positive compliment from a nurse who knew nothing about <laughs> photography, and I was hooked. You know, that's incredible. I love that. In almost every interview so far, there's been that one person. Yeah, an impressionable age when somebody compliments you and you feel like, okay, okay, well, cool. That's I'm good at that. Then, what was your kind of family like? Were your parents quite supportive? If you went, like, oh was, god, yeah, was, yeah? massively. Yeah, yeah. My parents never wished anything on me. You know, they never never tried to push you into nothing, a different direction. Actually, or... No, they just let me do my thing. I mean, I wasn't at home a lot, so I went right. to boarding school when I was nine. You know, I was sort of brought up by my peers and teachers. Yeah. And holidays were then just holidays. And I guess it was the same as it is here in that there's, you know, one big summer holiday. No, yeah. and there's four semesters. Right. Your longest break, I think, was five weeks. Might have been six weeks you know, over Christmas, which is summer. The longest you'd never, I never saw my parents was probably four weeks, maybe. Okay. Quite a close family, other like, you know, when you did go back. Did you feel? Yeah, yeah, yes. But then I, my parents got divorced at ten when mm. when I was ten. So then it was sort of split holidays and stuff. So and then I didn't I didn't have any cousins growing up as well. So we sort of just kept ourselves really, like because it wasn't yeah you know, we just didn't have a big family in South Africa because the the family just were everywhere from when they left Ireland really in England. How so, did you cope with the divorce? Do you think you did all right? Yeah, boarding school fixed it really because I never I just didn't really see any you know if anything i got double the amount of presents (laughs) (laughs) so so for you it was something positive i think so i mean there must have been some trauma like a 10 year old seeing but so i went to boarding school at seven but not full boarding i'd come Mm. home on the weekend so i was weekly boarder from seven and then from nine full boarder so yeah i'd and i'd already been at boarding school a couple of years so it's not like all of a sudden i was home every night and now Mm. mommy or daddy weren't around and did you, did your mum? So your mum stuck around close, I guess, in South Africa. Nearby. From ten till about thirteen or fourteen. No, they lived three or four hours apart. Wow. Okay. Uh, my mum remarried. No, maybe not four hours. Maybe two hours. Maybe right. two hours apart. And then from four, I think it was fourteen or fifteen. They then just by coincidence landed up living in the same town. So that was quite convenient actually, because couldn't quite. You could sort of walk from one house to the other, but. It was it was close enough to sort of be at dad's in the afternoon and mum's in the, right, okay. in, in the morning or something. What I was yeah. wondering was just whether or not the split meant then that holidays for you became a one or the other kind no, of. No, it was fifty fifty. So yeah. it was and it was literally the first two weeks at dad, the second two weeks at mum. Oh, okay. Yeah. Going back to your question, I don't think I got affected too much by it. You know, maybe it made me a little bit more stoic, I guess, which has worked for me. I think. Seemingly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, has it changed the way that you think about your own family? Boarding school. Yeah, I'd never send my kids to boarding school. No, I, w- I want those evenings around the dinner table and I want the, the weekends to go and teach them stuff and learn stuff and do stuff together. It wasn't an option for my parents because there was no school near where they lived. You know, I'm not holding anything against them and the schools I went to were awesome. I had good fun, but yeah, I'd, I couldn't do that. Were you sporty? Yeah. I did sport because you had to yeah. and I got okay at canoeing, but no, I was terrible at everything else. So do you think your teachers now, to, to know your achievements, uh, do you think they'd be surprised? I don't think they would have even remembered me at school. I think when were they... You that, were you that kind of quieter kid? Yeah, oh yeah, I just kept to myself. Do you have many friends? Not really, not really. Even now, I'm not really. I'm a bit of a loner. Yeah. I'm quite happy with that. With that. Caroline hates it. She, like Every time we go to like a kid's party, I get a pep talk. Sean? You will speak no, to you people. You have to speak to people. You can't just go in the corner and sit by yourself. <laughs> I actually failed preschool because of that. When I first went to nursery, I just was, I'd just sit in the corner by myself. And then they were like, yeah, he's not ready for proper school. So, so I had you're to stay always back that quieter kid. Like, <laughs> yeah. Did you occupy yourself with things like reading or drawing? Or yeah, you... just, I was always making things. 
Yeah, whether it was sort of yeah anything, just making stuff, making forts, making sandcastles, like right, so it wasn't kind of tiny, like, co- like, like it wasn't like arts and crafts necessarily. It was bigger. Oh, flitted, yeah. I'm terrible. Even now, I have a million hobbies. What sort of things do you do now? Uh, classic car restoration, woodwork. I uh, got my vegetable garden, which I consider a hobby. Knife making. Yeah, building woodwork, but like building sort of stuff, anything that needs to be built out of wood. I quite enjoy you got making many things in your house that are built that you've built. Uh, it's not really. It probably wouldn't be furniture. No, oh, okay. it's not. Not like furniture. Just like other random things. Like if we need something particular. So my wife has a wedding car business, and she, you know she needs trays for the back so that you can put a champagne bottle and a couple of wine glasses. So that's the kind of stuff that like right, I get okay. into. And I got into it quite young. I'm just trying to see this. Yeah, there we go. I made this even when I was five. No, I think I was ten. Made, <laughs> made a baseball bat for my mum to, to bash the baddies. So it's a wooden baseball bat, which is about 18 inches long, that. Made out of wood on a lathe. That's cool. When you were ten? When I was ten, yeah. I mean, it looks every yeah, inch the, the baseball bat. I mean, it's... <laughs> Fantastic. Over time, it's warped a bit. I haven't done it for ages. And this is something that needs building. I can on. see up there as well, cameras that say Conway Camera. Yeah, I discovered them years ago. As in, they're a company called Conway Cameras. Oh, yeah, 100 years ago, yeah. yeah. That's old box box cameras, like a box brownie. That's what How it, funny yeah, then that that bit. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, so I found them. I was when I went on eBay and just bought a whole bunch of them because I thought it was cool. I'm now menacingly <laughs> holding a baseball bat, so I should... <laughs> Don't ask like, me the wrong question. No, exactly, yeah, yeah. So... You're in the UK. You are making money in Cambridge chopping lettuce. Lettuces, yeah. 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 And it's some distance from there to where you are now. So like, take me from, you're in that factory or on that farm. Um, how long did you do that for? So after about a month, I saved up 600 quid. I thought, well, that's enough. That's a lot of lettuce. It's a lot of lettuce. Five pounds, 70 something an hour, I think. Living in the, do- in the dorm. Free food though as well. Mm. So you've got to save quite a bit. So I saved 600 quid, I remember, and I thought, well, that's probably enough to go to London and try and try to make a plan. Was photography the plan? Photography was the plan. So there was two people who had been in the factory, South Africans, who had moved to London the week before, and they had sort of messaged me saying, we've got this room share, not even flat share, room share in um, Finchley Road, North London. Do you want to come up? Uh, actually, no, before that, before that, my cousin lived in Richmond and said, come down and stay for a week and see if you can find your feet. So I stayed with him for a week. So you had cousins in Ireland and England, not over in South Africa? You know, I had some in South Africa. Oh, you did? Right, right, right. Yeah, right. yeah. So actually, this was one of the South African cousins. So not. So this is on my mum's side. Right, okay. So I had I had two, two cousins, uh, Amber and Richard. This was Richard. So my mum's sister's kids. He was in London and he said, I'll oh, come stay with us a week, see if you can find a job and whatever. So stay with him for a week, couldn't find a job, then reached out to these two other people who had been in the, in the factory with me. And they were in this room share up in Finchley Road. So I'm going to say a room, just probably, it's not much bigger than this room, this, this, this shed, my garden. So five meters by three meters, somewhere there. The three of you. No, seven of us. Seven, Jesus. Seven of us. So they're like, because we're just all trying to save money, really. Yeah. And, you know, if you th- could fit an extra person on the floor somewhere, you know, we're all saving 10 quid a week. 
So it was 30, I remember it was 30 quid a week. And there was a bunk bed here, a double bed there, and then three people on the floor. You know what? It was smaller than this room. Yeah, with the bunk bed and a double bed, you could you could genuinely only fit three people on the floor. So uh, I had the bottom bunk, and there was another guy on the top bunk, and then there was a couple, married couple, again, South Africans. We're all South Africans. In the double bed, and then these three guys on the floor. You know, it was basically a squat that we paid for. <laughs> I think the landlord was just like, well... I'm not going to kick them out eventually because I think it just been all, this for years. All shared kitchen, shared bathroom. Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a single bed sit, and then it had a tiny little kitchen off the side, and then a, to- a shower toilet on the other side of it. I mean, is that yeah. would that be legal? Is that probably not? No, I was tiny, like, and it had no. It only had a, a window with a small top sort of window, like a tiny one. So yeah. honestly, we didn't have enough oxygen. We'd wake up with a headache, like seven. I mean, of us. You're, you're just on top of each other there. Yeah. But so you weren't financially supported by your parents in any way in that money. sense. They didn't have God, any money no, to get you. They didn't have any money either. So yeah. that's why I never had, did a gap year after school either, because there was just no no physical way. Dad's a game ranger, you know. Um, Is that not a well-paid job? Forgive no, me God, for... No, right. No, no. Okay. Not in Africa. No. Right. Not at his level. He By the end of his career, he was in RANs. It was okay. But no, yeah, nowhere near enough to, you know, let their son go and... So to send money over to you for going, yeah. I mean, mum did, yeah, I think after a while, mum managed to save a bit of money and I think she managed to give me a thousand pounds at one point because I needed some photography kit. Um, So that was amazing. So yeah, mum was super supportive on everything, really. What kind of photography did you want to get into? Well, I wanted to be a National Geographic photographer. So obviously I wasn't going to go straight into that. So I applied for a bunch of jobs. One of them was, it was called the London Dungeons which was this like spooky experience. I've done the London Dungeons. Oh, have you? Yeah, 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 I know it. And there's photographers in there. Yeah, right, so, trying to get in you as you're scared, right? Yeah, yeah. So you've got the actors. You, yeah. As the setup is essentially you, you go through effectively a, a one way system and actors jump out at you and people take photos. You would have taken photos. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't get the job. Oh, so, right. Yeah, I applied for that. Um, and then I applied for a couple of commercial jobs and I was too young. I was too young. There's no way anyone would hire a 20-year-old. We're talking kind of headshot stuff, just basic corporate or... No, product stuff, actually. Right. So, like, a company that specialized in, like, catalog stuff for products. Right, Basically, okay. and, and high-end brochures and things like that, um, which I was quite good at. I was quite good at studio lighting. Mm-hmm. Lighting was a strong point of mine. And then, then I was like, well, I need to earn, so let me at least do something that is somewhat in photography. So... On Finchley Road, there was a photo lab called Snappy Snaps. The green and yellow, I think it's black and yellow now, but it was green and yellow Snappy Snaps. And I walked past and they said, we do digital. Because it was 2002. Digital was really early and the buzzword for everything. They said, we do digital. So I, I walked in, I spoke, I said, oh, um, can I speak to the manager or whatever? And this guy called Simon who owned the owned the the shop said, oh yeah, yeah, that's me. I said, oh, I see you do digital. Like, I'm pretty good at Photoshop and I can do digital. I was wondering if you have any jobs. And he's like, Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe. He's, he's like sort of quite a busybody. He's like, yeah, yeah, okay, well, maybe. Um, Mickey, and he shouted to Mickey, Mickey, this guy says he can do Photoshop. See if he can. So Mickey was like, oh, okay, come here, mate. And then he, he, he said, right, here's a passport picture he gave me. He said, this person wants their reading glasses removed from the passport picture. Can you scan it into Photoshop, take the, the glasses out, and like, let's just see if you can do that. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, I know how to scan. So I got the scanner out, put it on, did the scanning, opened up the scan utility, pressed scan, chose the right 
resolution and size, you know, asked him all the right questions about, right, what, what, how big does he want it printed? Right, that big, okay, so we'll scan it at this resolution. Imported into Photoshop, did some color grading, did the, the healing brush and the stamp tool back then, which I don't even know if those two tools exist. I think, I think they, they do still yeah. are. Anyway, did that, took the rim of the glasses out and stuff. And then, you know, it took about half an hour and Mickey was like, oh, you, you can do this, man. I was like, yeah, I know. I told, I told you I could. <laughs> and then he, I remember him shouting over to Simon. He's like, yeah, he's pretty good, Simon. And then Simon <laughs> literally went to me. He's like, cool. Do you want to start now? I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, can I go and grab some lunch? He's like, yeah, yeah, go grab some lunch. Come back. I have a shirt ready for you. And literally I started that afternoon. That's brilliant. <laughs> so you just walked into a shop? Randomly That's at about fantastic. 12 o'clock. I was about midday. And then at around one o'clock uh, after, I, you know, maybe 12.30, he's like, yeah, do you want the job? And then I went out and there was a waitrose over the, over the road. Well, you're, tre- you're treating yourself then. You're, yeah, you're, you're, well, yeah, that's all it is. It's the only option, to be fair. And um, got a sandwich, uh, came back, put a shirt on, and started that afternoon. And then worked five days a week for not very long, actually. And then I moved up to six days a week. Right. Um, just because I needed extra extra money. And how long were you at Snappy Snaps? In total, six years. Wow, okay. So yeah. we, we're talking. Yeah, a long time. Yeah, yeah. Good, yeah. good chunk so of time. I started off six days a week. Worked my way down to five. And I think I'd gone just to about four days a week when uh, my flat got broken into in London and everything got stolen. All my camera gear, my laptop, everything. And that was six months in. And um, I was like, right, well, I've got stole over again. It'd take me years to buy that kit. So I went back to Simon and said, can I go back to six days a week, mate? <laughs> He's like, yeah, okay, fine. So six days a week, worked... So for... I'm going to guess you didn't get any of that, back, any of that stuff back. No, no, no police I mean, came, fingerprinted the whole they do, flat. They do the whole thing. They make it look like they're doing something, yeah, but it's like... Yeah, no, nothing. Yeah. No. And then worked another year, probably at six days a week, and then five days a week, four days a week. And then James, my business... landed up being my business partner, who I met. He was British, but we met at Photography College in South Africa. He had left South Africa and come back to Britain, come back to London and said, right, let's start. Fancy starting a photography company together. I'd never really thought about it. I was like, oh, well, actually, it could be cool being a partnership rather than being on your own, you know, shared skills, shared kits, shared everything. And uh, he's like, yeah, brilliant. So then we moved into, God, I just remember the time frames here, moving from house share to house share, living. I once rented the space behind the sofa in a house share. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, honestly, there was about, it was a three-bedroom, semi-detached, one up, one down. I think there was like 12, 12 of us right. in this house share. All South Africans or? South Africans, Kiwis and Aussies. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, what was this? In Brent Cross. Right, yeah. yeah, up in Brent Cross. Uh, Hamilton Road. One, I want to say 147 Hamilton. There's even a Facebook page. It's so famous now, this, this house share squat thing. And... um I lived there twice, two years apart. And I remember the second time I moved in, both times behind the sofa. So there was a, a gap, like a half a meter gap between the sofa and the wall. And it was, again, 30 quid a week uh, for that space. I had like my suitcase at the bottom of my feet, basically. And um, just had to have earplugs and an eye mask type thing to sleep because people watch TV late. Had people had night shifts to come in and watch TV at midnight yeah. and whatever. I mean, and you're in your 20s and you're in London. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to say people are dating. People are... Oh god, yeah. I don't know how that happened with people. I wasn't dating, but yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it's weird. The second time was like, I have got nowhere in life. I'm just, <laughs> it's two years later, and I'm back behind the bloody sofa. And um, 
Yeah, and then James moved to London, and then we decided. So we rented a one bedroom flat together. He had the bed because he had a girlfriend, so he got the bedroom, and I was in the living room. Uh, and then, I, but I couldn't on afford- the sofa. No, uh, it was going to be on the sofa, but then I was walking like it must have been a week after we'd moved in, and well, I had been sleeping on the sofa, and I knew that wasn't long term. Like it was super uncomfortable, but I just couldn't afford to buy a bed. So I I remember walking past Skip. And there was a single bed and mattress in the skip. So I remember sure. running back to the house. I was like, dude, dude, we've got to get this bed and mattress before someone else does. No one was ever going to take Nobody that bed mattress. Like, it would have been there for another week. But in my head, I was like, this is we found the jackpot, mate. So I remember him. It was one of those divan bed bases as well. You know, the big, yeah, thick, know fat ones, ones right? Yeah. So we, he's like, brilliant. So we ran down the road. And then I'm carrying this mattress on my head. And he's carrying the bed base, uh, which I think was in two pieces, actually. And uh, yeah, so... Yeah, hoovered it, sprayed a bit of bleach on it. A little bit of breeze done. Yeah, Yeah, that's fine to... (laughs) Why not? So I at least had a bed just in the corner. It was quite a big living room, to be fair. So I had the bed in the corner. So that was cool. And this was, yeah, I mean, this was pre-wireless internet even. So if if I want to check my emails, I had to unplug the bloody cable, plug it into my laptop. (laughs) And then, I mean, it probably wasn't. We probably could have got a wireless router back then. In fact, we almost certainly could have, but that was 50 quid. Whatever. It's like, well, I can just, you know. So you and James went into business together? Yep, we went into business together. And a couple of jobs we did in the early days were great, actually. Like, we got a couple of cat, because we both wanted to do outdoor photog- travel photography. Right. So we did a couple of catalogue shoots, like one in India, one in Morocco. So people paying you to go out there. Photograph, yeah. So we'd products. go out with a couple of models, usually, the usually the marketing director. That was it, really. And sometimes yeah. someone else from the company. And they would have all the products they needed to sell for the following season. And we would take photos and they would land up in, in the catalogue for that they would then send to whoever, to stores who, you know, for people to buy. And uh, yeah, it was fun. Do you remember which catalogues? Yeah, so Life Venture was the, was the main... What um, one, sorry? Li- Life Venture. Life Venture, okay. They make rucksacks and things like that. Then there's so Little Life was their kids' brand. All right, so it was kind of like travel products. Travel products, right, yeah, okay, rucksacks brilliant. and... Okay. And first aid kits and compasses and kettles and pots and, you know, stuff like that. And it was good fun. And then I, I also got a part-time gig working on the Harry Potter films in the stills department. Doing what? Stills, helping out the stills. So the stills on a movie set, A, he does all the behind-the-scenes stuff. Then he also does the shots that they'll potentially use for press and PR. Actual shots, which replicate the camera angle so at the end of a take he might then go in and just they'll do one take for him right and he'll stand where the cameras were otherwise he's at a different angle that makes sense and he was pretty murray close amazing photographer any with nail and eye picture you can ever imagine will be his that famous uh, mission impossible shot of tom cruise hanging looking sideways at the low angle you know that was his He's done all the John Wick films at the moment. Oh, so cool. he's, he's amazing, yeah. He's a very good photographer. So what were you doing? as a, Were you an assistant to? Were so you an assistant doing... to him, helping convert the studio from still from film, slide film, to digital. Right. Because they initially were shooting slide film, getting the slide film developed in Watford, posting the slide film to LA to get scanned. Right. And then the, 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 the JPEGs or TIFF files or whatever they wanted would come back. And with contact sheets, which I know would take weeks. Isn't it incredible? Yeah. Just so, how yeah. much things are move on. And also, it's crazy. Why send it to LA? That's the thing. There's a t- hundreds I'm of sure places in London. I'm sure there's somebody great. Yeah. 
And pro- you know, so anyway. So, just... so were you um, on the films? Did you travel with them? So, so most of those films are shot in, on set. Yeah, it's all fake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. Do like a week up in Scotland, I think. Bit of time in Gloucester as well. Yeah, yeah. But most of them are shot are shot in the studios, and it was incredible. Like you'd go into a studio the size of a football pitch, and they'd built a forest, and you're looking at, it and you're like, that's a legit forest, and you go up to it and you tap on it, and it's just paper mache. Is that they built a lake, like a fake lake, and I'm like, where'd you get all the water, mate? And he's like, it's not water, it's painted. I was like, you're joking. These artists were incredible. So they painted the lake with water yeah. and then they just got a smoke machine, put put it flat on the edge of the of the painted cardboard, basically, and let out some smoke, which would then trickle slowly over the top of the lake. And even to the eye, yeah. it looked real. That's crazy. So on film, it's going to 100% look real. So how did you get the gig at Harry Potter? <laughs> That's quite a good story, actually. I was in a pub with my mate, Arif, and he knew a guy who knew a guy who knew Murray Close, the photographer. So we got chatting, got chatting, got chatting. Eventually, and I'm chatting with Murray, and you know I've had a couple of too many Guinnesses now, and you know he says, "Oh, what do you do? Oh, I work for Warner Brothers. Oh, cool. What do you do, Sean? Oh, yeah, I'm working at Snappy Snaps. So, you know, oh, what do you do there? Oh, yeah, I'm pretty good on Photoshop, and I just do Photoshop for people and things. He's like, oh, I'd really love to learn Photoshop, and I really need to. Do you think you could help me? I was like, yeah, mate, I'm the best in the world. <laughs> just give me a call. And I wrote my number on a napkin, and, you know, pissed, gave it to him. I remember waking up in the morning going, oh, God, blown it. I've blown it. I had the, one of the best sort of film photographers, and I just blew it. Anyway, blow me down a couple of weeks later. He's like, hey, mate, yeah. Fancy coming in and converting my setup from stills, from uh, film to digital, from slide film to digital. I was like, yes, I went in. I was still thinking in rands everything's so expensive so i go to murray and i was like right well if you wanted you could get this camera but this one's a bit better and you know if you wanted you get this this printer but you know this one's and he's like mate just tell me the best i need like just just do it just tell me tell me the best i was like okay well this is the camera you want you know the the eos mark one or whatever it was at the time because he shot canon and then you know you want this big printer like and we're talking a1 size printers then you want this digital scanner the nikon cool scan i think it was called top of the range you want the smaller printer which will do your contact sheets you want and i think i remember the bill was like he was jotting it down and looking at prices and just writing it on a piece of paper and at the end i remember writing drawing a line he's like twenty five thousand pounds and i'm just like firstly i just looked at the figure and i was like there's no way like why would it, like your system like there's no one getting that. like that's not gonna happen anyway Literally, like, two days later, I was like, yeah, it's all been paid for, done. Yeah, sweet. It'll all arrive in the next couple of weeks. Do you like want to come in, come in once a week and just teach me how to do it? So, yeah, I basically taught him, taught him a bit of Photoshop, taught him about scanning, creating contact sheets, all that sort of thing, and uh, did that for two years for the third film. Do you have any interaction with the cast, director? Not really. You're not actually allowed to talk to the... You're not? No, yeah, that's in the contract, yeah. Really? You, you will not talk to talent, yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. When I had my Discovery Channel stuff, it was so weird. Like, I'd go in for, a, for like, a bit of PR photography at Discovery headquarters in London, and, like, a crew of, like, ten would come in, and not one of them would even look at me until I talked to them, and then they could talk to me. And I'm like, what? Come I remember on. just being... Speaking to my agent at the time, I was like, can we just get rid of that contract? And they're like, no, that's it's just a how really they weird aspect, isn't it? It's it's, a weird thing. I think it, I was going to say, then I can kind of understand it. I don't know if I can. I yeah. don't know. Like, what's no, that? I can sort of get it. There are 200 people on film set. Yeah. Easy. So if everybody tries to. If talk you're the actor you. and you're in the zone and you're trying to do your thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, the last thing you want is an extra who's there. You know, this is his moment. <laughs> you know, because with extras, sometimes you're short of extras. So you've yeah. got mates and mates who are extras who are not part of any extras agency. They're just there because there was a big scene and their mate who is an extra yeah. was told to bring some friends 
So now they're there on set with Blimmin' Harry Potter. God damn, I'm going to talk to him. You know. Yeah, no, so, right, fair enough. You know, so I, I, I sort of get why they have to sort of make that rule. Yeah. So actually, I became quite good friends with Dan's stunt double. Right, no way. <laughs> because the kids could only work three hours a day. It was three and a half hours a day filming. So they had to do an hour. They had to do school, three hours of school or whatever it was. They had to have a 15-minute break every hour or something. They had to have an hour's lunch. They had to make up and stuff was an hour. So and, and they can't kid child actors can't work past seven o'clock at night. Right. Okay. So what they would do is you know, almost half the film is the doubles. You know, any shots wide from shot, behind, any wide, wide shots, shot, anything any, like that. Yeah, anything that vertical shot of them running through the forest or mm-hmm. all of them because they all had doubles. They'll never waste Dan, Emma, and Rupert's time with that shot because you don't need them. So they're, they're, that's when they're at school. And then so you get all those shots done with the extras, and then you go down. So it's all shot listed, of course. You know. So yeah, I became quite good friends with the, the, him. I can't remember his name now. Richard, I think it was. Uh, I say good friends, you know, while I was on set. Uh, proximal friends. Yeah, exactly. You know, where you're there. Yep. Yeah. You know, we sort of... Because there's such... Most people don't talk to each other on these big sets. Everyone hangs in their cliques. Luckily, Still's department was crew one, for whatever reason. So crew one is the top crew. So you're there, you know, so I'm in the cafe with sort of Alan Rickman <laughs> sitting next to me and and, start, and I was just like... Well, I guess you're so key yeah. to the promotion of the whole thing. You know, yeah, it, sort it, you know, of. Still's a yeah. big part of. Yeah, it's still a hustle for him because cameras are getting so good they could take stills from yes. that. Right. They're not as good, and the frame rate's not as high. So obviously, the, the still within a a movie is because it's only twenty five frames a second might have a little blurriness to it. Mm. Whereas Murray's will always be pin sharp, and now fifty megapixel, you know. But he was still hustling to get the shots. You right, know? he's still there with the director going. So, for example. That shot of Tom Cruise hanging on Mission Impossible, low to the ground, looking directly at the camera, where I don't think he's down the barrel, but you know, that would have needed to be done just for the stills, right? So you can imagine there's a whole setup to make that shot happen, right? So he's up there, he's coming down, he's stopping, he's hanging, it's Tom Cruise, he's hanging from all these ropes, and it's taking 100, you know, take 27 to get it. Now they're running behind schedule because it took too long and they need to get Tom to the next studio to film this other bit. Stills get thrown out the window, man. So so Murray has got to convince the director for them to do one more take. Just just for yeah. 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 It's not the director going, I think we should do a Stills one now. He doesn't give a shit. Like, director wants to direct a film. So he's there trying to be buddies. And it's quite stressful. It's weird. Like, he's sweet-talking the director at lunch and trying to make friends with him and... And things like that, um, so that the director can go, right, Tom, we actually need one more, please. Can you go back up and drop down so that Murray can get his stills? But it doesn't always happen because, especially with the kid actors, you know, at seven o'clock, chaperone will come in, drag them off. Done. Set. Yeah. You're out. out here. Oh, we just one more minute, please. No, sorry, you're out. That's fair. Yeah. So. Makes sense. So two years there, two years, you know, working on. Yeah, years, I was still at Snappy films. Snaps at the time. Still at Snappy Snaps. Yeah. So even when James and I started the business together, you know, I was still doing maybe three days, three days a week of Snappy Snaps. He was working at Kodak Express in Camden mm-hmm. while we try to get more jobs. And then we got into music photography as well a little bit. But we just weren't getting the jobs in, really. Um, we were too young in hindsight. Um, too ambitious, I guess. Unrealistically ambitious for our age. Because now, you know, if, if, I was, uh, if I was hiring someone for a catalogue shoot, they'd have to have a pretty good portfolio to be that young, really. Right. You know, because you just don't have the experience. But were you mid to late twenties? Yeah, mid twenties, really. And all the all, you know, there was no Instagram back then. But 
the people we sort of found out that were with in our industry, they're all in their forties, you know, right, like, okay. they've got good experience and good portfolios and networked a lot and stuff. So I remember once, so on the side we, we did weddings mm -hmm. and corporates like corporate headshots and things. And then a friend of a friend asked us to photograph their kid at school. Cause I think they're at nursery school. Because if the photographer had pulled out and I think an email went out to the parents saying, oh, do you know a photographer who can come in to do photo day? So we were like, it was 100 kids. And we went in. We were like, oh, we don't want to do it. But, you know, you've asked. And we, you know, okay, we'll do it. Went in, white background, two lights, boom, 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 100 kids. Didn't think anything of it. Created some contact sheets, sent them to the school. It was all pay by check back then. Tick the photos you want. And this is the price per photo. Write a check to us. And, you know, we'll collect it leave it at the school and we'll collect it in two weeks time or whatever. So hundred kids took us a day to f day to shoot and maybe half, not even a day to shoot, but probably a day and a half of all admin went to the school and she gave us an envelope. I was fat, fat envelope. I was like, Whoa, what's all this? She was like, Oh, it's all the orders. I was like, no. Anyway, we freaking can't. I was, we've made like two and a half grand. I was like, what? That's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, I was 24 or whatever. I was like, that's, can't, we can't have made that much money just for like a day's work. And anyway, we're like, huh. So then James is from Jersey. So we were like, I know a lot of the teachers in Jersey. Let's just try and see if we can just photograph like four or five nurseries there. And then, you know, and if each one makes us a grand, you know, at least we've got five grand for the year and that'll help, you know, that pay our rent. Not, not quite pay our rent. I think it was 700 quid a month rent for us in the, that one bed flat. And uh, we were like, yeah, let's just do that. So we went and photographed these five nurseries. They all said, yeah, yeah, because they all remember James from being a kid there. And so we got in. It was easy. And yeah, and again, we we earned, yeah, probably more. I think it was about 20 quid a kid photographed, I think was the I mean, It's crazy. Now. You're about to learn, by Roughly, the way. Yeah. This is, this. the hustle is only, yeah. <laughs> like in terms of the amount of money that I've spent on pictures of my kids yeah that of course then every year you need yeah, to get a new one absolutely you need yeah. to get a new two because you got the class yeah. one because they want that you've got the you know yeah and we were doing digital then so we were quite early on on that stage so we could we were offering for 50 quid all the photos on a cd so that boosted up the averages but no we'd say call it 20 quid you know so if we photographed 100 kids it'd be two grand at least 50 kids is a grand so all of a sudden you know we're realizing Jesus, this is easy money man you know, and as a young 20 year old, all of a sudden, all the creative jobs were like, hell no, not doing that. We're going to go photograph some crying babies. And, um, and that was the downhill spiral, I guess, the start of it anyway, where <laughs> we just landed up going full tilt into the school stuff. Right. Thinking it would give us enough financial freedom to go off and do the other stuff. But actually, it just took all our time away. So we had no time to do the other stuff anyway. And yeah, I mean, fast forward till just before I gave it all up. It was seven staff, mm -hmm. an office, you know, everything. All focused around just school and just school, nursery. Yeah. yeah. So, so we you, had, you famously sold for a pound. Yeah, or sold, sold your, for a quid, yeah. Yeah, why? Two things. One, James was my best mate. Didn't want to ruin our friendship over money. And secondly, it was my metaphorical flag in the ground that I wasn't going to do anything just for money. Purely for money ever again. We all, you all need, we all of need to eat. Yeah. Nursery is very expensive. Oh my God, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You've forgotten those days, mate. Uh, Jesus. That was your flag in the ground. Like, yeah. At that just point. To like, you need to earn, but chasing the money wasn't satisfactory. There's no end goal to that. 
ever for anyone i think no i've chased i wholeheartedly believe it and again everybody i've spoken to for this speaks about financial security and once you've got financial security and you feel like you can breathe that that's that's the goal for most people you know i've 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 spoken to those people that i want millions i want a billion you know and and ultimately I, i just think they're chasing the wrong thing you know look at your life look at what you need financial security for you and then you can make decisions that aren't motivated by money that will lead to it anyway and i always say to my team i'm i, I want to make money and i want to have fun doing it that's it if i can make money and have fun doing it then we're golden you know and then you get to make good fun kind creative decisions rather than money motivated hardline yeah exactly decisions. yeah but it's difficult because you know people get into debt early on in life mm. nowadays and getting out of that's hard God, and... it's not easy for people yeah and um you need a lot less than you think you need for one yeah so that's always something you know i lived on a boat for years and you live i lived such a f- simple good life on a boat to be honest where was that in worcester on yeah. the seven. Oh, yeah. you on the seven were you? Mm. Oh, okay in the selling of your business was that to go to anything no, that was I just went out. I just I didn't so know you what just I wanted. Felt trapped by it. I just hated it. Yeah, I just was it's just not happy in and I, I no, I just turned 30. Just so turned I just 30. turned 30. And that made it being the catalyst. My girlfriend at the time dumped me was a catalyst. I just sort of was like something needs to change. I can't mm. but I didn't know what. I just knew I couldn't carry on doing what I was doing. What I love about that Sean is a lot of people now and I'm 35. I wanted everything as soon as I could physically get it. As soon as I could achieve it, I wanted it. You weren't even doing the things that you're very well known for now until you were in your 30s. I think I saw a photo the other day of Morgan Freeman, and it, he didn't get into acting until he was, or you know, his main his breakout role was when he was 50 something. Yeah. But we all know Morgan Freeman, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think it's important just always to say life isn't always a straight path to this early success that gets touted by the media very quickly very readily because 19 year old makes 20 yeah. million yeah. on youtube is a great headline but that's just not a reality yeah and then also what are you going to do when you've got it all at 25 you know it's like you've got another 60 years to you, live you'd hope. yeah <laughs> you know? so, so you didn't know what you're going to do no but i sort of knew i wanted to go traveling because i never had right. this gap year option as it were i wanted to go traveling didn't have any money to go traveling so i thought if there was a record some sort of world record Maybe I'll get sponsorship. So I was sort of, yeah, in a roundabout way, got into the records because I was skint and I needed I needed the record to warrant someone potentially giving me some sponsorship money because they weren't going to just do it for me to go la-la traveling, right? It scratched that itch I didn't know I had. Like trying to go for the record was something that excited me a lot and I didn't realize it. How did you first get to that thought? The first thought, right, I'm, I'm going to get out there. Because it was on the bike, wasn't it? Was that, that was your first... I had cycled lands in John O'Groats already, so I'd done that in my 20s, and then I enjoyed that. What made you do that? I was, always used to take a month off holiday, right. a month off every year in the photography in the winter, or yeah, you know, it's like January, February, March, April, when it was quiet. So I pushed this one to April, the end of my sort of the time I could take away. And again, I was a bit skint, so couldn't go abroad, and, you know, I couldn't go away for a whole month for the money I had. But I could stay here for a, for a month and do something here. And I'd, so I just, just stumbled across, and I don't know why or how, I don't remember, this thing called Land's End to John O'Groats, which, which I'd never heard of. But it's the two furthest points you can travel to on mainland Britain. Just once the idea came into my head, I was like, I'm going to do that. So did you do that solo? Yeah. I was going to, initially, my thought was maybe walking it. Right, okay. Because it'd be cheaper. Yeah. But I, I couldn't have done it in a month. Uh, so then I was like, oh, I can do it on a bicycle. Like, I can definitely cycle it in a month. So... Yeah, a little bit more expensive, I guess. So there was something, though, from an endurance perspective that you didn't think twice about. 
your capability of oh cycling. no cycle lands in jungle it's a month you don't need you need zero physical ability really oh no that's okay. 30 miles a day you know it's okay. nothing <laughs> so you can so yeah anyone could do that over a month right in fact when i finished there was this couple in their late 60s they're like oh have you just finished the jog i was like yeah yeah, yeah. You know, how long did you take? And I was like, oh, 25 days. And you? They're like, oh, 14 days. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> the record's two days. Really? 41 hours, I think. How hard was it trying to find sponsors to believe in you and help you with your idea of, do you know what, I'm going to do some traveling, but I'm also going to break a record. And what was the record? The Around the World bike record. Yeah. So I got lucky. I got very lucky. I found a company that gave quite a lot of money to a specific charity and I knew it was so it was my mate's boss. So that's the first thing I did is I emailed all my mates and said, any of your bosses into cycling, will they sponsor me? And then I found out that this company gave loads of money to a specific charity. So I went and said, right, well, I know you give all this money to this charity. Why don't you give me some of that? And I'll raise money for the charity and I might even do better. Okay. Yeah. So what was the charity? Solar Aid, providing solar lamps for people in Kenya mainly to, so they could get rid of their kerosene lamps. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Who was the company? Uswitch.com. Okay. Yeah, the energy comparison website. Yeah. yeah. So, I've just spoken, my last episode was with Hayley Parsons, OBE, who created Confuse.com, the first ever price comparison site. Oh, right. Yeah. And then she went on to create Go Compare. Oh, wow. Um, so it's really weird how there's there's always little bits. So I love how things are interlinked. No, absolutely. Yeah. So they were very supportive. So that went well. Yeah. They gave me the funding to, you know, buy a bike and do some training and stuff. So. So. Yeah, so it was very much the old school days of like, well, I might get in the newspaper. Yeah. You know, I'm going to raise money for the charity you want. So that was the big angle, of course. You get to use me in PR and stories and things like that. And, you, you know, we can do press releases and, you, you know, there's a bit of corporate social responsibility boxes you guys will get to tick. You get some marketing boxes and stuff and logos and things like that. You know, I don't really know how much they made use of it their back end because i was sort of cycling around the world but um yeah the, the big one was the charity side of things do you feel like you got the experience of traveling while or because if you're attempting a record at the same time do you feel like you you've got what you're after what you're hankering for in that travel yeah or more so yeah, yeah. I'm, i hate traveling as in <laughs> i hate just the concept of aimlessly wandering experiencing new things no i i need to have something to chase I'm terrible on holidays. No matter what, where we go, I just need to do something. Like Don't get me wrong. I enjoy, I enjoy meeting new cultures and trying new foods and all that sort of thing. But I get bored pretty quickly. Yeah. So I always have to have some something. Yeah, I loved it. It's sort of like I did a wine tasting 
travel version of the world. Like if you go wine tasting, let's say someone puts 20 little bits of wine in front of you. You don't get to the fourth one and go, oh, I'm going to stop here. Give me a bottle of this one. You carry on, right? And then at the end you go, well, I like that, 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 and that, and I'll get bottles of those. So that's what I did on my round the world cycle. <laughs> Basically, I'd, I'd that's a lovely a little, little wine taster of each country, and I'll go back to the ones I liked. I've heard you say it's about the four types of records. Yeah. So you've got. Let me see if I can do this. So you've got the the fastest, yeah, furthest, mm. the most, and the first, yeah, records. You've done now all four or you hold records in all four of those. Do you want to speak to each of those and what it means to you? Yeah, so it's sort of... Firstly, I thought there was only three. Mm -hmm. Firsts, furthest, and fastest. And then when I thought of that, it was around the time... It was probably just before Swimming the Length of Britain. And that was the year after... My Around the World, yeah. Around the World, yeah. So I'd somewhat thought of trying to get a fastest record. Well, I had, so when when I cycled around the world. And then after that, I came up with this thought that, oh, there's actually other types of records. And there's, I think there's three of them, first, furthest, and fastest. So I thought, right, well, let me try and become the fastest to swim the length of Britain. And it turns out no one had attempted that. So that went from a fastest to a first. So I did that in 2013. Then went straight on to do the world's longest triathlon. So the furthest everyone has ever traveled on a triathlon. So I did that in 2016 uh, I ran Land's End to John well, John O'Groats to Land's End in 2015. And then that became the first, um, and I'm still the only person to have done a Land's End John O'Groats triathlon. But I sort of didn't really count that because part of that was only, the only reason I did that was because I did the swim and the swim was my first anyway. So I did the world's longest triathlon. Then I had the fastest one to get. So that one took me a few attempts. So I'd failed around the world. Well, yeah, failed around the world. I tried Route 66 record. I actually tried the Europe record once before and then eventually on the second attempt got the European cycle record from east to west, west to east even. Just on the round the world, you were hit by a driver as well, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mentioned I spoke to James Cracknell who in 2010 was hit 65 miles an hour as he was attempting a, what was it, a, a cycle, swim, run, row from California to New York. Yeah, state. and that. You were hit too. Yeah, 50 mile an hour. So he was hit by a wing mirror. I was yes. hit straight from behind. And, As in um, they hit your... Hit back wheel, hit yeah. Back hit wheel. back wheel. I went straight up onto the windscreen there. Yeah, I don't remember anything, so it's all good. So you blacked out? <laughs> yeah, just fully unconscious. Are you yeah. wearing a helmet? Yeah. Jesus. So where was that? In Arkansas. Right. Mm. Did you hear it coming? Well, I don't remember anything. I don't remember that whole morning. So yeah, there's a whole 12 hours of my life that I don't really, and almost 24 hours of my life I don't really remember. I remember going to bed the night before. And then I have vague memories of things, but I don't know where they actually happened or it's just me sort of remembering other days that were similar because I, you know, every day I'm getting up in the dark and yeah. leaving a car park. And so, I mean, does that still have an effect on you? Any injuries or any? Yeah, my my back. So I've got T11 compression fracture. So I've got messed up back a little bit. So. The driver it's, stopped. And the yeah, driver. Oh yeah, the driver was amazing. He stopped, admitted fault, and checked up on me in hospital and all that. So yeah, no. And to be fair, I was on a road you'd never cycle on. I'm just really. I was allowed to cycle on it, but you know you wouldn't ordinarily have chosen to cycle so on it. What kind of time it would have been? It's like six in the morning or something. It was right. dark still. So it was still dark. Still dark. You know he had done that that drive every morning for fifty years or something. He was a, a baker. And um, you've probably never seen a cyclist once in 50 years. So, But, you know, 
culmination of just got yeah. and it was raining so my rear light there's a traffic light ahead of me because i went back to the spot where i got run over to carry on cycling around the world from that spot so yeah i remember there was a traffic light ahead so at night wet road red traffic light my red light mm. you know you just got lots of red red in the reflection of the road in the water red in the sky because of the light windscreen wipers there was a big tornado the day before so i'd actually had a good sleep because I cut my day short to to miss the tornado. So, I mean, to your point earlier on, you said that the divorce maybe helps you become a tiny bit more stoic. Yeah, you've got quite a stoic attitude to to this. Which well, is, I don't remember it, so like, it's just, that's the thing. It's, it's just someone else telling me the story. At the, you know, it could have happened to anyone else, and it'll be, yeah. you know, so yeah, it was difficult to carry to deal with because all of a sudden the record was off. Because there's no way that I could have carried on with those injuries. How far through were you if we're talking about percentages? Four thousand miles in. Of 18,000, so just under a quarter um, in 23 days or something. So I was on for sub-100 days, I reckon. And what was the record? It was 160 days. But then, because Alan Bate, who did a partially supported ride, and to his defence, he was trying to get, for years and years and years, he was trying to get Guinness to differentiate between a fully supported ride, or a supported ride and an unsupported ride. And Guinness said no, and and rightly so. There's too much grey area. So eventually he submitted his, and literally like it was must have been a few weeks before we. So no, the record, no, the record was 150 days. Finn Cox, because he did submit, and then Alan submitted, and it took it down to 100. I want to say 120 days. Yeah, about 120 days. Like Alan was strong. Yeah, all of us who were in that race were sort of the goal was sub 100. I think. Right. So it was, it was a race. Yeah, there was 12 of us all starting at the same time, all from Greenwich. And yeah, first one around the planet. Yeah, it's quite a cool idea, actually, which Vin Cox came up with the idea. And then Mike Hall, he sort of took it on and, and, you know, made it what it was, I guess. How did you feel going from that, I guess, corporate world of snappy snaps and kids pictures? Like, Did, did it feel right to, to be? Oh, yeah, I loved it. Yeah? yeah so oh, yeah. straight away you took to it? Straight away, I loved the training. I loved the planning, I loved all aspects of, of I mean, what is now my job. Yeah. Do you think you're just this genetic freak? No. Or do you think no, anybody can do it? No, anyone can do it. You just got to want it. Yeah. I was tested. I went to the same labs, the Brownlee brothers and stuff. And mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's nothing special about me, but genetically uh, or biologically, I should say. But mentally? Um, yeah. I don't know. I just wanted it. Have you really, have you ever it. really assessed that, really looked at it? Like where that where your drive does come yeah, from? Yeah. No, I don't want to look into it. Why? Well, because I might find the reason and then maybe I'll try and fix the reason. Let's say it was because I had this traumatic bullying experience when I was a kid. Did you? I don't know. I've not not looked into it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you don't remember a no, traumatic remember. bullying experience? Yeah. No, I don't. There's nothing I remember. So anything, anything that could be fuel for the fire will have been some subconscious thing. Whether it was the, my parents getting divorced mm-hmm. or whether it was boarding school and being away from home or was it some episode of bullying that i don't remember are you really comfortable in your own company absolutely yeah love it i never get lonely it's really funny you you say that you you don't want to analyze something because for years i thought there's there's aspects of you know why i wouldn't want to self-analyze because for for exactly the same reasons it's like okay well I i feel like i'm doing okay and if i'm doing okay and then all of a sudden i recognize that thing and i try and fix that thing then does that change my trajectory? Does that, yeah. you know, does that take me away from 
what effectively was an angry kid pointing in a direction thinking right this is here's a cycle to break and i'm going to do it genuinely thinking those thoughts at a young age thinking right i'm going to i'm going to be different and here's how i i i have thought I've, I've worried over the years that you know what if that dissipates because that that whole thought of i mean are you happy oh yeah but i, I don't chase happiness either you don't chase happiness yeah absolutely not no Which, i don't it's it's funny, isn't it? Because it's, it's like you know, happiness shouldn't be a constant. Yeah, like it, it's an odd thing to chase. That I do, I do completely agree. But you know that. And also, I think of... people mix up happiness with joy. Yes, they do. I think joy is brilliant. You know, find joy in tiny things, in little yeah, things, in, in yeah. everything. But you know, to try and chase happiness as a goal, as a constant, is an odd. Thing. And also, but I, I'm also not very good when I'm like massively happy. I get lazy. Yeah, you don't strike me as a lazy person. Yeah, sure. just like I lose the fire. For training, mm. I don't train as much when I'm like, when everything's going well and, you know, money's coming in with sponsors and talks and books are selling well and, which is most of the time to be fair, but it's the times where all of a sudden I've got a big project that needs funding mm. and I've got to finish writing a book. Like, I thrive on those things. Like, that's when I'm getting out of bed excited and, and I feel like I'm getting more out of life that way. So, yeah, I'm I'm sort of... The terrier in me needs to chase things. Do you think, is, is there an ego there? Oh, of course, there's a bit of an ego. There's the, you know, getting an acknowledgement from your peers. You know, everyone wants that. Getting Having your kids potentially, you know, say they think you're cool one day, which I've been reliably informed it's never going to happen. But... Um... I say, my, <laughs> my think I'm the least cool person in the whole yeah, world. Exactly. And that's, that's okay. Yeah, and there's some weird metaphorical scenarios in my head in a hundred years' time where my great-great-grandkids are still getting beer money for my book sales, you know? Like, I quite like that that thought. I was going to speak to being a professional ultra-athlete. Is that what... How, how do you describe yourself? Well, weirdly, I'm actually a non-professional ultra-athlete. I'm professional in a way that I do it full-time. A career but Yeah, but, but actually, I'm not part of an organized that's body a, that's of athletes. Good, yeah, good denomination, you know, I guess. I'm not, I don't enter races on the professional circuit. Sure. No, thank you for that. That's, yeah, that's a, that's so, a... so weirdly, yes, it is my profession, but I'm sort of a full-time non-professional athlete because I'm not part of any professional organization or join any professional. Because when you become a professional athlete, you've, you've, you, know, you, you get race... You get your your accreditation mm-hmm. and and all that sort of thing. I don't have any of that. This gives you the flexibility to do what you want to do when you want to do it. Yes, yeah, but that's not the reason. I just I'm good at the long, long, long stuff, and mm-hmm. no one else has bothered making it a professional sport yet. <laughs> <laughs> because I see why, because not many people do it. Like I did a, and and just to show you that you know a good example of the diminishing sizes of people. I did a double iron two weekends ago, and so there was a half, a full, a double, and a triple. It was probably you know, 100 doing the full, 25 did the double, and only five did the triple. So you're sort of quartering the number of people who do something every time you double the distance almost, like, as a rough guesstimation. So all of a sudden, when you get into the really long, 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 long stuff I do, there's probably three people in the world to do it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so... It, it's hard to make that a professional competitive... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So it's about the records for you. It's all about the records, yeah. So is legacy massively important no, in that sense? No, zero. I have. I yeah. don't care at all. Except I do like that Which thought is, of my career. Which is, again, right? a lovely thought. And I think there's a lot of people out there that might look at their lives and think, oh, you know, I'm sick of it. This isn't what I want. To, to your point about you with the photography company, you know, this isn't what I wanted. And they could potentially look at you and think, well, you know, I, don't, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. What, do you, what would you say to those people? 
if you think that, then you're right. <laughs> I really like that. You know, and I'm I'm very bad at motivating people who who don't want to do stuff. Like, go to Goggins. Like, if you can't get out of bed every morning and feel motivated, like, I'm not your guy. Go to Goggins. Follow him. He'll sort you out. Once you feel like you can get out of bed and you want to turn up, then come to me. So do you do any motivational speaking or anything like that? Yes. Yeah. And those are people who've decided to come to me already. You know, I'm yeah. not there. I'm not shouting at people to kind of get out of bed each day and, yeah. you know, look in the mirror of whatever he calls it. Goggins, he's got that mirror, doesn't it? You look in that mirror, man. Are you fat? Say you're fat. Admit you're fat. Go and do some bloody exercise. You know, I'm not that guy. Like, yeah. You know, I, I'm not that crass. <laughs> yeah. So, you're, you, so you feel like you're great at motivating yourself. I'm very self-motivated, yeah. But, usually. And I sort of don't get, I, I really don't understand people who aren't. Right. You know, and I'm not saying you have to be on the whole time, but, you know, just have a goal, have a long-term plan. Don't be in a rush, you know, and, and that plan might change, you know. I've, I'm on my fifth musical instrument I've tried to learn in life and I've given up on all of them. But you know what? I think maybe music's not my thing. <laughs> You've got to want to do these long, hard things. You've got to really want it. Like, it's so miserable and it's so difficult and you're putting your body under so much stress for so long. Was there a financial freedom that came as a result of you doing these long, long, long... When I finished swimming the length of Britain. Right. Overnight. Changed. What happened then? Yeah. What changed for you? Every, everything came to me. All of a sudden, Google was saying, come talk at, at our offices and Microsoft and Lloyds Bank and Sky TV and Discovery Channel came to me and said, oh, look, can we make a documentary about your next thing? Whatever it is, we don't care. Just do it. Book agents came to me and be like, well, all right, here's some money. Write a book. Here's some money. Take the money. Go and write a book. So all of a sudden, overnight, you know, I went from being so poor, I couldn't even get to the start of that swim. I needed 200 quid. I didn't have 200 quid. So I had to go to the bank. To, to, and that was just to put diesel in my car to drive to Land's End and my mum was going to drive the car back. Yeah, I went from there to all of a sudden, you know, book deals and TV deals and agents and managers and all these sort of things pretty much overnight. So Was it was it on that that you grew your beard? On the swim I grew On the, the swim. Beard. How much do you think brand and having a noticeable, obvious brand help? Like it's a talking point for everyone. Mm. I think the beard got too big at one point and then it just be i just became this weird like i was just too weird i yeah. think for a lot of brands because i sort of looked at my beard length and then it's weird like when it was really big and the hair was big and the beard was all over the place i think i just became a little bit unrelatable i just became you this become weird, a caricature of yourself yeah you? this weird crazy guy with a massive beard and I uh it. i didn't see it it wasn't on purpose no no no, no sure I it just, wasn't just just didn't cut it no, there was no goal of trying to have this big. And I'm, I'm sort of just like, my hair grows pretty quickly anyway. I remember, I look back at pictures now and I tell Caroline, I was like, what? why did you let me do that? Like, what? Why did you tell me to cut it? Yeah, so there was sort of, there was no real thought process around it. It's just sort of, I get, I, if I shave, I get a rash. Right. Um, even, even just with the clippers shave. If it's too short, I get a rash. Yeah, so the beard, so I did grow the beard there and, and it became... A thing, I guess. It's an identifiable tr- yeah, aspect, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, but it's it wasn't something... I didn't marker. sort of go like, well, this is my brand now and I need to always have a beard forever and ever and ever. I probably will have a beard forever and ever and ever because, as I said, I'm, I'm lazy and I get a rash if I, if I cut it short. <laughs> yeah, I think people think it was this just master plan to differentiate myself from everyone else. But Brilliant. Not everything needs to be quite so planned. Yeah, no, yeah. it just is what it was. And, and I like it. I like the beard now yeah. and I can't imagine life without it, to be fair. If I'm honest, <laughs> I bet you feel that actually. Yeah. Well, it length, goes in my mouth, so like <laughs> when you breathe, it folds up onto your onto my mouth. So. Christ! So you're there 
things have changed. Media, as you said, publishers. Had you written anything before? Had you? Did you have any designs on being a writer? It's weird. When I finished cycling around the world, I was like, oh man, there's so many people who've written around the world books. Like, what's the point? Like, I'm not going to bring anything new to the table. I didn't get the record. I didn't go out for years. I didn't really speak to anyone. Like, oh, this is going to be a bit crap. Like, no one's going to buy it. And then Dave Cornthwaite, friend of mine, said, mate, don't write it. Don't write it for other people. Write it for your future grandkids. And I was like, bloody hell, mate. That's brilliant. And that's what I do now. Because there's zero, zero financial reward to writing books. Almost. I know. <laughs> I, so I've, I've had a book published. It became, I mean, it's you know very popular in and around PR. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Don't you worry. I get those checks. It came out in 2017. I get the uh, I get the royalty check now. Uh, <laughs> but it's the only one I've done. I think you've got six now. I've seven? got six. Yeah, six. yeah. I've written seven, but I've got six. Six yeah. out. What's the seventh one? It's a guidebook. It's up there actually. It's called World Cycling Stripped Bear. It's outdated. Right. Basically, yeah. So I unpublished it. For me, in my industry, I was told it's an 80,000 word business card. Yeah. And that's a wonderful way of putting it, I think. Yeah, I, I like think that, for, yeah. for you, it's slightly different in that it's... No, it's better. Like, I mean, I'm sort of probably selling myself a bit short, to be fair. On good months, my all my book sales will pay my mortgage. Yeah, yeah. so it's it's pretty good. It's pretty good, to be fair for me. But that's still not... <laughs> it's not the, you know, hundreds and thousands that some people make writing books. But, yeah. you know, it ticks over. It ticks that's, over. I, I don't even know if the industry is that anymore. I think, you know... Even... Audio book sales are huge now for me. Yeah, they're, they're good for three, you, are Three, three t- probably twice as much so two-thirds is is audiobook i would say and a third you read your own paper ah oh, so i do on one and i didn't get the choice on the others annoyingly yeah. what's what's wrong with this slightly west country yeah. voice <laughs> i found so i only found out i had an audiobook for my round the world cycle book when someone tweeted me and said <laughs> just listen to your audiobook mate it's brilliant i was like i have an audiobook like they didn't publish it didn't even tell me they were just like Crazy. and then i and i remember messaging them and and like, oh, I'd love to do my own. And then I know we have contracted in, in-house yeah. people. So. And, I mean, the person that did mine, perfectly lovely. Absolutely, yeah. I but, agree. Pers- and the person who do... And they, they, they do a great job. They've I done a better that. job than I oh, could have done. Almost but certainly. I think the, the the consumer now will forgive a shit performance if it's you. If it's real. Yeah, exactly. If it's you. I remember listening just to a, a bit of it and I thought, that was supposed to be a joke. And the inflection takes it from a joke into just a straight statement. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, just absolutely. small, small aspects like that. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, there's, there's two that I've been given the option to read, mm-hmm. but it's quite hard to get audible to change it. I need to look into it. If right. anyone knows how you can change an audiobook on audible from just to change the audio files. Yeah, basically yeah, from, from a narrator to you yeah narrator. so someone's just changing the narrator because obviously yeah. it's got it's got reviews and you know and it's linked to a paperback that's out there already yeah i've not looked into it it's, it's like it's a great it's it's probably it's the best part of a thousand pounds to read a book right yeah to, of studio time so i'd want to go into it knowing <laughs> that it can be done so i don't want to waste all that time and money reading a, one of the books and then Audible going, sorry, we can't change it. So I need to. Makes sense. Haven't had time really to look into that. But um, no, I love it. I love writing. And as, as as you say, I have all my books now in, in our downstairs toilet. So whenever I go for a piss, there they are looking <laughs> at me. And I go, oh, that feels good. <laughs> I guess now you're in multiple. You know, you've written multiple books. Yeah. The fact is they know they that you can do it. They know that you can deliver a copy on time. They know that you it's going to be good. But they're also looking at book sales and going, well, actually, yeah. <laughs> this is all we know we can earn from you now. So Because you know, in the early <laughs> days, I, I remember that my deal for my first two books was way higher than it should have been, to be fair. 
because they were just like, oh, well, he's swum the length of Britain and he yeah. cycled around the world. These will sell very well. And, uh, and they've sold well, but I don't think they've sold as, as much as they thought. So any deals I go into now, they sort of look back at my history and go like, oh, well, you know, you're only going to earn this, so we'll give you a grand advance. <laughs> so you eventually did cycle all the way around the world? I did, yeah. Just a bit slower than I was hoping. I mean, for me, you know, I guess because I've always looked into that mm. ultra, clearly I'm never going to do it. I mean, look at me, I'm a lump. Uh, you, know, I'm, you don't want it, mate. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't want it. You have recently finished a new world record. Yeah. And your new world record is 105 Ironman triathlons in 105 days. And the record stood at 101. 101 was the record, that. yeah. To put that in perspective, I've done some quick maths. That is the equivalent, from a miles perspective, of just shy 15,000 miles. Sounds about right. An Ironman triathlon is swim 2.4 miles, cycle 112, yeah. which most people won't do in a year. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Cracknell said in his episode that 80% of people don't walk a continuous mile in a year. Shut up. That's a genuine stat. Really? During oh a year. God, so only 20% crazy. of people do that. So. Wow. I mean, he, he's speaking specifically to nationwide obesity rates and his interest in politics being specifically around the idea of yeah. to do something about that. So that's over the course of the, the 105 Ironman triathlons, 252 miles swimming. How how long is the length of Britain? The swim, 900 miles, I think. 900 miles. Yeah, yeah. 11,760 miles cycling, which... That's okay, quite these, a lot, I guess. That's quite a lot. There's quite, <laughs> quite a few. Uh, 2,751 miles running. Nice. So, again, you know, just shy of 3,000 miles, which I believe is America. They're, Across America, yeah, if you go yeah, lower if, down. If go in, about... That's 14,763 in total. To put that in perspective, Sean, that's about as many miles as I drive in a year. <laughs> Probably more than I drive, to be but fair. You've, <laughs> I guess, you know, with work, I'm here, there and everywhere. But you have almost 15,000 miles in 105 days. 25,000 miles around the, the Earth's equator. Yeah. You've done 60% of that. <laughs> in just over three months probably gone from here to australia or something yeah there or thereabouts yeah i've not really thought about that it's quite cool eh? i just thought i i I felt like somebody must have done must have come to you with the stats at some point i've tried to listen to other things i haven't heard anybody come to you (laughs) no 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 one's come with me of that no there are other podcasts that you've done recently there's lots of interviews around this it's a monumental achievement it really is and it's yeah, it's, it's something I couldn't even imagine. So you know, doing doing one of those, most people can't imagine doing one Ironman. It's a it's a big thing already to do an Ironman. Uh, you know, a, a very small percentage of people ever will. So to do 105 is, of course, absolutely incredible. You could have stopped it 102. Yeah. Why didn't you? I wanted to do 103 because I wanted to see what it was like doing one, knowing I didn't have to do it. And then I was feeling I was feeling good, ish. You know, as good as you can be. But I sort of got into my rhythm of. Right, well, I know it's going to be painful, but I know if I just turn up, I can do it. And then I, yeah, I just didn't want to quit because if I would, that felt like a failure. If I'd quit, it was me going, you know, I've only just giving in, it. you know. So, but I couldn't carry on too long because it wasn't fair on Caroline and the kids. And so, yeah, so I just flipped coins until the coins had stopped. So, and that was a nice way to end. Really- but I could have carried on. I had numbers and caps printed up to 123. Yeah, I could have easily gone to there, but it wouldn't have been worth it. So, have you ever read the book The Dice Man? No, you're aware of it. it though, yeah, you know yeah, of it. Yeah. So it's just funny. It's strange. Is that what your life's going to be now? Just yeah, probably take, you know, making decisions based on random chance. Yeah. Um, no, that one. That one sort of there was no. There was a lot of thought going into that. You know, when I in the nineties, as in when I was hitting day ninety something, I spoke to Caroline. I was like, I'm feeling good, and I think I should carry on. And she was like, Well, I'll support you, but. 
you know, the kids want you home and it's it's hard. And um, and once you've got the record, you've got the record. Yeah. And uh, and also sort of, I, 90% of me really wants someone to break the record. 10% of me wants me to hold it forever, but only 10%. 90% of me sort of has no business in trying to keep that record forever. So I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Dean Connors did the 50 marathons in 50 days, right? Yeah, in 50 days, yeah. So you know, yeah, when, yeah. when you think of, you've done that. 105 days in a row yeah yeah and it's weird like there's a limited number of person who will want to do it because most of the world doesn't even understand it you know when you say oh i did nine man all they know is that oh that's quite difficult that's why i wanted to bring numbers to it because i think again there are lots of and that's to, to my point about interviews with you there are lots of people that can speak to you on that physiological you know kind of elite ultra level I don't think that's me. I think, yeah. you know, I, and, and please do go and listen to those. They're fantastic and really give you an insight into the pain you put yourself through, the, the incredible uh, amount of yeah, torture you can put put your, your yeah, own body yeah, yeah. through. But more than that, the the mental strength of, of it all. You know, what I'm interested in is, is, is genuinely the why. It's the, you know, what, what gets you up every day to do that to yourself? It's, I just, I have to. Because you said you would. I said I would, yeah. Well, once I say I'm going to do it, everything that I need to do to do it becomes a non-negotiable. So when you leave the house every day, you put your clothes on. You don't question Mostly. Yeah, mostly. (laughs) I've seen your OnlyFans. (laughs) Um, You're the one. (laughs) Yeah, I'm your one subscriber. And um, yeah, brush your teeth. You you know, you brush your teeth. You put your clothes on. Like, it's a non-negotiable, right? So yeah, I'm the same. So everything I need to do. Getting up 429 every morning. Not once in 105 days did I wake up going, I don't want to do this. Not once. And and I don't really have an answer of why. Just so ingrained in me that that's what I do and that's what I have to do. I know the long-term plan and I've got a system and I need to follow the system. There's no deviation. You know, if you're a pilot, when you get onto your aeroplane, there's a whole bunch of safety checks you've got to do, right? You don't not do them. Like, you don't question whether you need to do them. Because, you know, if you don't do them, you might crash later. And I was the same. You know, every day I had to do all these things that eventually led to me finishing a full iron distance that day. And then I have to do them all over again the next day. And that was just life. I think you've spoken about possibly your next book might speak to some of those. Yeah, there's 10. There's now 11, I think. I keep adding a few more to this (laughs) ever-growing list of endurance. But if you wanted to... If you want to get good at multi-day endurance challenges, and when I say good, you want to compete. You want to compete at a high level. You want to not get injured. You want to be fast. You want to beat other people. You know, I'm not just talking about like, oh, going on a long holiday. You know, you, you, this is like doing good distance, good mileage, mm-hmm. good times, operating your body at its peak and getting the most out of your body. You, there's now 11 Although it still might go back to 10, but anyway, we'll go with it. There's um, planning, experience, fitness, health, nutrition, hydration, muscle management, motivation, sleep, community. And then I've, the, the last one I've added recently is discipline. But you sort of have to be disciplined on all of them. But I might throw that in there as, a, as a, its own it's a good umbrella. Its own for each thing. Of those. Yeah. So, but you've got those 11. And every day you've got to smash all those 11. And if you don't, you'll be behind where you could have been that day, whether it's on time, on distance, on speed, on pace, on PBs or whatever. I think some, I mean, many of those principles apply to not just endurance, 
as well, right? I think yeah, I you know, guess possibly so. that's yeah. You know, if if I think about if you start a business, yeah, you know, many of those things hold true for yeah. that or any goal that you might have. Yeah, that's true. You know, yeah, because people might scoff at the notion that hydration's important, but yeah. but isn't it? Or sleep's important. Yeah, sleep's important, but then so the only slightly difference is like for the most part, everyone says you know you need to sleep most people you know need to sleep more than they think they need to probably mm-hmm. but sometimes in endurance challenges like when i did this double iron there's no way i could have you know i needed eight hours sleep in the middle of that but there's no way that was i would have lost the race right. <laughs> i'd have been actually i wouldn't have made the cutoff right. for the end of the race 42 hour cutoff if i'd had so i had 10 minute nap in the middle and i did a 40 hour and i, I waited for my cousin a few times and we did it together so he was a bit slower than me but still maybe i would have done a 35 hour so if I'd had an eight-hour sleep in that night in the middle, I wouldn't have made the cutoff. So there's more elements to the sleep, you know, corner of that pie chart than just the right amount of sleep. Because the right amount of sleep for a specific event may be still way too little sleep, but it, you know, the right amount of sleep may be no sleep. Mm. You know, so it's a strategy you just got to look into. Like, right, I'm doing a double iron. Will I need some sleep? I might need some sleep. Hopefully, I won't, because then I'll then I'll be ahead and I'm not losing time. But if I am sleepy, then I'll do a 15 minute nap, and then you just factor that in. Mm. And that's on that sleep strategy. That was as most as I was ever going to do. 15 minutes. So, is 15 minutes enough to give you what oh, you yeah, need? Oh yeah, yeah. Really? Fix my sleepiness. So I was it was about 5 a.m. when I was really like swerving on the road. It was dark. I was like trying to keep my eyes open trying all the tricks like looking up and left and right and getting wind in my eyes and just wasn't working so i just literally went off the road 15 minutes woke up boom on my own didn't no, no alarm or anything. i set an alarm just in case i overslept but yeah woke up and yeah all the sleepiness was gone for the next 20 hours so yeah all the way through till 11 o'clock that night wow I guess most people don't physiologically test themselves in that way to know that 15 minutes would be enough because that surprises me. Yeah, yeah, and, and that... it's not always enough. No, it mostly no. is. On a one, if you've been sleeping well in the nights leading up to a, a race, and then your race is roughly 40 hours long, let's say, as long as you've slept well in the days leading up to it, 15 minutes in the middle of that usually is enough. But then you've got to be careful because you know there's the tendency to have caffeine at around 10 o'clock at night. Because you, you start feeling... I didn't feel any sleepiness until about f- three in the morning. And then I held it off until about five. And then I knew... Because I thought maybe I could hold it off until the sun came up. And when the sun comes up, it fixes you a little bit. But yeah, I just thought, right, let me take... I've wasted more you know, time peeing. <laughs> so 15 minutes, you know, I might as well just have a nap. Important thing to say as well is... I think it's weird when you come to interview somebody and you tell them back what they already know about themselves. <laughs> so I'll be doing, in the intro, I'll be giving a good kind of you know, broad look at, I knew you'd done a lot, but I didn't know you'd done as much as you have. Um, this to yeah, the, the challenges you've put yourself through. I forget most of through. it. Like I went it, through my website the other day and I was scrolling through my... It's a long time scrolling. Like, oh, wow, well, yeah. And on your site, oh, actually, I that's what I was... I've forgotten about that one. It's like, <laughs> you know... Forgot I ran across Iceland once. You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's like such a small thing. I just was like, eh, oh yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's so, if, if you were to put a number on it, how many challenges have you put yourself through? Dozens? There's got to be about 20. Yeah, 20 that are worth talking about that are maybe, you know, have taken me a week or longer. You've got it on your site in a really lovely way. You've got um, successes. Yeah. You've got hiccups. 
and you've got dreams. Yeah. Let's speak to each of those things. So successes, what do you consider your most successful challenge to date? Well, all of them. If I plan to do something and I succeeded it, it's a success. Amazing. The most difficult one that I've achieved was the 105 Ironmans. Yeah, that was hard. Swimming the length of Britain was also hard because I was cold the whole time. And it was long. It's a long time to be cold, four and a half months. So it was longer. But the Iron, yeah, the Iron 105 was, was the hardest. So that would be the one that... You know, I probably annoy my grandkids with being like, you know, I once did 105 full iron distance. And they like, shut up, granddad. The record's 500 now <laughs> by that Kiwi guy. <laughs> where did you do it, by the way? Where? Um, so, yeah, where, where? So I swam in a pool here in my local town and then cycled down towards Cheshire where it's flat and then ran on a byway around Chester. So along the River Dee. So lots of local support then. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. And that was the community element of the pie chart was incredible. And you were running for a charity. True Venture Foundation, yeah, supporting mainly. We're starting off, I say we because I'm pretty much volunteer full-time for them. Starting in North Wales, focusing on swim, cycle, run, triathlon. And then the goal is to A, expand the different type of sports that the foundation gives money to mm-hmm. and the the area. So it's North Wales only at the moment, but we will expand. True Venture has a pot of money and they just want to give it away. That's as simple as that. So you, people can apply for funding to them. So and there's two types of funding that they'll give. The most common one and the bulk of the money will go to youth clubs. So if you're a youth club and you need money for X, Y, Z, putting on an event. Youth clubs in North Wales. In North Wales. So if you're a youth club in North Wales, let's say you're a tri- let's say you're an adult triathlon club, but you want to start a youth division, but you need to pay a coach to come in once a week. You know, you put that funding request through and then True Venture will look at it. And then the second bit of funding is will be youth athletes, athlete grants. The, we're looking for a few athletes to give regular income to, sort of like almost like a monthly wage. Not a lot, but enough for them to maybe fill their car up with diesel to drive to events and stuff like that. That, that would have been nice, wouldn't it, yeah. for you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, I could have done with that. You know, so maybe there's a bit of money that they'll get each month. And then the idea is it'll be a three-year commitment from... Wow, from okay. True Venture to give them this funding every month for or every year, once a year, whatever. Them. There, is there any limit as to the kind of athlete? Or at the moment, some cycle, run, triathlon. Right. But I, I don't think they would say no to someone in you know if they feel like it's going to a good cause. So if somebody wanted to look into that funding, where would they go? So it's only happening from January. So they go on to the trueventure.org.uk in January-ish time. Mm-hmm. Or on my social media, I'll be pushing it hard because obviously... You, you raised 70k, was it? So we raised so a, we raised about 100 grand, wow. um, yeah. which came in a mixture of just people giving me money for the, the challenge and then some corporates have thrown in a big chunk of money to support specific athlete grants, for example, rather than going into the club thing so and on that note do your sponsors do they sponsor you year round or do they sponsor you per a mixture mostly i will go in so for the ironmans i said right well tell you what support the ironmans and then i will you know go into a deal with you for about 12 months you know so six months a little bit before during and then about a six month period afterwards so So i guess they're the income streams aren't they for somebody that does what you do it's it is books it is speaking Book speaking, um, book speaking and, and sponsorship. And sponsorship. Yeah. yeah, those are the three. Yeah. So, successes we've spoken to. Hiccup, what's the one that sticks out to you? I don't know. They've all been pretty crap, to be fair. But I've learned from all of them, so they're all pretty good. But um, 
And yeah. hiccups, we should say, are the ones on your site where you say you didn't quite achieve them. Yeah, so like, the, I'm pretty good at bouncing back, eh? So like my round the world cycle, that was a big one because that one, that one I never got to reattempt. You know, whereas the injury I got from running the length of Britain the first time and bailing on that, I reattempted that. Reattempted my Europe ride when I got injured on that. Reattempted the Iron 105 when I got injured the first time on that. We haven't even talked about that. The fact that you attempted the Iron 101 at the time, you know, the first, the 102, the first time around. That must have been incredibly difficult. Coming out of COVID, coming out of lockdown, all of that stuff, all the training to then get to Mm. attempting that and then to get injured. Yeah, I know. That was hard. But I learned a lot. My route was a bit crap on that course anyway. Even though I had by day seven. So I got injured on day five. I came off the bike. And then it was just a, a minor little like tendon pull. And then it just got worse and worse. And then it got to a point where I was just too slow and I was missing I missed the cutoff. So it was game over. But um so I'd already I'd already sort of changed my route. And you've got to think on your feet with these records, you know, you've got to be ready to pivot and change direction and you know, when things get thrown at you, just, you know, you you make a plan and you go a different way. And um, so, yes, my original route was terrible, but I'd already changed it. And my fitness, I was probably should have been a bit higher on the old fitness. My swim and my bike were one of the quickest on that last day, on day seven. My run was the slowest because that was the injury. Just to put it in perspective again for people that this, you know, it's, it's, fine to, it's hard to find something relative. Iron Man Triathlon takes you how long? So there's a 17-hour cutoff, but it was taking me about 14 hours, which if anyone wants to b- beat my record, that's your goal, 14. Yeah. There you go. You need to be able, and Challenge you need to be doing down. that in zone one heart rate, maybe. Maybe the so bottom end of zone two, 110. Yeah, that's, my average was 110. If you can do those two things, if you can do a 14-hour in a zone one heart rate, then you, then it's sustainable. So you, you, that's the fitness level you should be aiming for. Yeah. Dreams. What do you want to do? Yeah, there's sort of there's quite a few I've not put on the website because I want to those there's some dreams you should keep to yourself. I agree. And um, yeah, it's cool. There's a couple of ones, you know. Caroline and I just keep umming and ahhing about going off for a year before the kids are at school, school proper, proper, and living on a desert island or living on a boat for a while, you know. But yeah, I don't know. I quite like I quite like my home life. I like my little hobbies and it's a beautiful place here. It really is. Yeah, and I'm not sure I'd be good just wandering around the world on a yacht. Hey, I get bloody seasick but <laughs> I, I feel a bit aimless i think yeah it sounds cool and it's a cool story and, and maybe that's enough to be fair yeah you know, maybe that is enough and it'd be you know maybe it'd be good for the kids but maybe it wouldn't because they might not remember it i have a mate who spent the first two years of his life on a yacht his parents were sailors uh he doesn't remember any of it <laughs> he is a sailor now to be fair though so it obviously had some impact i think with what you do it's hard because it's harder to get bigger and better with your challenges. It is hard, yeah. But in every there's it's always gotta be something bigger and, yeah. and if it's not then oh it's not as good as that. You know, Absolutely. You know, do you feel that yeah. pressure? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's it's not pressure coming from anyone, it's my own pressure. It's your own pressure. Yeah, because I want to get bigger and better and faster and stronger and do harder stuff. Because again, you're only kick you're, you're forty two. Yeah, so I've got time. So I've got another fifteen years, I reckon, of, of doing the long stuff. What do you but, what do you want to achieve? Is there is there yeah, anything that, no, that you look at yet. and think I need to I, I need a I need to have a go at that. Well, I know I've won the wife lottery when, like, this genuine conversation we had a couple of weeks ago. You know, the I, it's been nearly two months now, and and I don't have to think about anything for another year, really. It'd be twenty twenty five before I th- do anything else. And Caroline, she was like, "Oh yeah, I wonder, I wonder what you should do next. I wonder, maybe you should run around the world." <laughs> I'm like, 
right? Who are you seeing on the side? What's his name? Why do you want me out the house? <laughs> yeah, that would be cool, eh? Yeah, that would so. be incredible. A long time away from the children. I guess they'd have to come in. You know, you I could, wouldn't you do it do. for ages. Like, if I do yeah. that, and um, see the difficult with something like the round the world run is there's no real record for it. As far I was as say, I has believe. anybody ever done it? Yeah, Rosie Swale Pope, and uh, she dragged this like what, what basically is a caravan, which you can sleep in. It's one bed caravan, so fully enclosed, wow. and she dragged it behind her, and she put all her food what and stuff this? in it. If I did it, there would need to be high high level of physical physical sort of element to it mm. so because anyone can run around the world if you go oh I'm going to run around the world it's going to take me three years I'm like well that's easy well it's 18,000 miles divided by three years as toys you know anyone can do that whereas if you say if you've got the time yeah exactly wow. exactly yeah you can do it pretty cheap to be fair once you once you get out of Germany it's dirt cheap and then Australia's expensive and America's expensive but most of the world will be pretty cheap. Do you think that when you say anyone, do you mean anyone? Anyone able. Anyone with a body can do this. But yeah, and of from course, a mental obviously... perspective, I just don't. I don't know that anybody can. I know you, people might not want to do it. Yeah, but anybody physically could. You, the the ability side is 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 fairly straightforward, especially if there's no record. Because if you get injured, you can just sit out a month. And I would want to do it in a in a in a way where, you know, people look at the maths and go. Blimey, he ran fifty miles a day. So fifty miles a day is is a year. So that's three. So eighteen thousand. That's three hundred sixty days. Sean, I feel like you've, um, you've already done the maths on this. I oh, absolutely. Like already... oh, I do the maths on all these records. Yeah. You know, um, the round Wales run record. That's up for grabs. I reckon that's nineteen days. So that's forty seven miles a day. Yeah, I got that in me. I think. But then it's it's a it's a trade off. My kids are young. Mm -hmm. Do I want to be away for that long? You know, I'm already lucky that I scratched a lot of itches pre-kids. You know, swimming the length of Britain with a, with a family would have been hard. Cycling around the world with a family would have been hard. The other stuff was, those two especially, because they were much harder. Even my world's longest triathlon at the time, that was 80, 85 days, I think. Was that 4,000 plus miles? 4,200 miles, 4, miles continuous triathlon. Yeah, so that was 80-something days. Like Again, that would have been hard with family. Um, all the other smaller stuff. Did it help with the 105 that you got to come home? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There was chat of me not coming home. Right. There was chat of me... I could have done my swim nearer the run start uh, and run end, which mm. meant I could have... There was chat of me renting a little flat down by the D, and I could have done... Because there's a different pool I could have used, which would have saved me... I spent 40 minutes in a car every day, which was 40 minutes I was not sleeping you know, or eating or stretching or doing a lot of recovery I could have been yeah. doing, right? So, yeah, there was that thought. And then also there was, you know, by me being out of the family system, maybe it would have been better for the kids. But actually, it was good that I came home. My youngest didn't really know, didn't care. He's too young. My oldest, I was sending videos to the school to play at assembly. So at least he knew daddy was doing something cool. And, you know, everyone at school was super excited about Monty's dad doing the, the you know, the 105. So, yeah. Yeah, coming home was was good. What does success look like to you? Just achieving what you set out to achieve. As simple as that. Simple as that. Have a goal, and if you reach it, I, I've that was a success. What about personal success? Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. You know, nothing more kind of heartstring tugging than that. Nothing family orientated. Nothing. Yeah, oh yeah. Like I want to be a good dad. I want to be around for my kids. Like then I'm a success. You know, I want to be able to put food on the table and you know 
be able to teach them things that I've learned along the way. So does that motivate you when you're in a dark moment? Yeah, oh god, yeah. So yeah. when you're in those when you are on day 95 and you're hurting that you know is is like what what do you what do you reach for? I don't really reach for anything. It's it's a non-negotiable that I do what I do. So I don't I don't need a lot of like you don't need that intrinsic drive. To go, yeah. Why are you really doing this, Sean? No, you know, I don't need any of that. I, I just don't. And I don't know why. And I can't. People have asked me and they're wanting this like really clever answer that's going to help them when they're in their dark moments. But like it's so ingrained in me just to turn up and do what you need to do. Like, Which is what possibly does get me to not everybody could do it. Yeah, maybe. Because yeah. that is it's, it's a unique mindset. Yeah, and, shared and maybe by I don't appreciate that. Fewer but... than 0.1% of the population, I would imagine, that you can do what you do. I don't know, man, because I still think loads of people could do it. But maybe you're right. Maybe there's this bit of my brain that doesn't get affected by certain things and then allows me to just carry on. I'm very also practical. You know, when things aren't going right, I'm analysing it massively. Mm. Like, why Why am I down today? Why is my pace down? Why am I feeling crap? You know, and I look back at all those 11 things. You know, is it my motivation? Is it my sleep? Was it my nutrition, my hydration, my planning, the community around me? Am I having a bad day? You know, and I overanalyze it. So that takes my brain space. And then, yeah, it's very rare I have a proper... I had one bad day on the Iron 105 when, you know, I found, I think it was around day 30, I realized, you know, they gave me the total that, that we had raised for the charity. And I think it was only at two grand mm. on day 30. I'm like, are you joking? My mate did the London Marathon and raised five grand. Like, what? I've done 30 of these already, plus the swim and the bike. And then Caroline just had a terrible day with the kids. And um, then I had a little bit of, like, athlete guilt where I was like, well, what's the bloody point? You know, I'm not raising the money for charity that I was hoping to do. Putting my family under a lot of strain for me to just go off on this whimsy, self, self-indulgent you know, thing for my own personal gain. and uh, No one else is gaining from it at the moment, it seems. But then I just knew, right, well, I'll turn up tomorrow and it'll be fine. And then it was fine. You can choose to be that bit more positive, I guess. To having a system mm-hmm. and trusting the system and following the system. So it's not like, yeah, tomorrow's going to be amazing, man. I'm going to, yeah, let's do it, man. <laughs> went, let's make listen, tomorrow awesome. You went back home, you listened to Goggins. Yeah, I listened to you Goggins. Got, you pulled yourself together. I got my mirror of perspective, whatever he calls it. <laughs> Yeah, no, there's not even not okay. even that really. And I, I do try and think of why it's like that. I think that it's healthy to be obsessed, mm. and I feel like again the binding thing between everybody I've spoken to: curiosity, yes, obsession, yeah, obsession with. For you, it might be adhering to the things that get you to the goal, which is yeah. you know to, to, your, to your goal of success. You know, earlier on, you were talking about the cameras. And you're talking about, oh, this is the best one, this is the best one. You just knew that because clearly you're curious enough to learn and there's an obsession, an yeah. obsessive aspect possibly to learn enough about that technology to just on the spot say, this is what we need right now. Yeah, and this, yeah. is, this is the best, in the, you know, this is the best in the market. Yeah, when so, I get into something, I get into it heavy. <laughs> it's just, it's just, end, it's just good as this. Yeah, yeah and, exactly. And not, I don't know, uh, you know, drug dealing. Well, right? exactly. You'd, yeah. you'd be the best drug dealer there ever was. Yeah. <laughs> Or like boxing, where I'd probably be punch drunk already. Do you think? <laughs> probably. Yeah. What is the hardest thing you've had to overcome that wasn't a challenge? Um, I'm pretty good at dealing with anything that comes my way. So things come my way and it's difficult. I'm quite resilient and resourceful and level-headed and stoic. So that's good. But I think the thing that I will struggle with, and I don't know when that time will come, but all of a sudden my, my body, my ambition will out, outweigh my ability. 
So I think that's going to be something interesting to deal with. And I don't have an answer for that. And I'm hoping by that time, the ambition will go. Mm. And I'll just be content with what I've done in the past. And appreciative and, and you know, feel lucky that I got to live the life I did doing all these long things. You're not content now? Uh, sort of. Yeah. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm very proud. Like I got my little wall of my brag wall there with all the newspaper clippings in front of you and everything. So I'm very proud of the stuff I've done. Don't get me wrong. But, and the terrier is fed at the moment. Mm. But that's because you've just done something nobody yeah, else exactly. has done. Yeah, exactly. But in two years' time, that's not enough to keep the terrier happy. The terrier has to go and chase something again. So, and I don't know, at some point, that becomes unachievable when the thing I want to chase, I am physically unable, just from a purely biological point of view, able to do it. It may never come, because my mate Dave, Decker Dave, just won a Decker Ironman. That's 10 in a row, continuous. He won it outright, out of everyone, and he was 64. So that's what there. I was thinking as you were talking. Then I was thinking, well, so I've got if, you, time. if you look after yourself in the way that you quite clearly do, why? Well, yes or no. I look after myself, but I also hammer my body. You do hammer your body. Yeah, <laughs> you so... do. <laughs> pretty much, actually, yeah. everybody I've ever met. You know, I was doing ninety hours of zone one training a week for three and a half months. You know, there's zero recovery. Well, I say zero. I was getting ten hours recovery every day, which is quite a lot, to be fair. There could be a point where I just sustain an injury that's just like like all sportsmen and women. At some point, you're not going to be fast anymore, or you won't be able to go as far anymore, and that's just life. I don't know. I'm I'm loving working with the charity with the foundation. I can see myself being the world's most annoying PE teacher. <laughs> so yeah, there's stuff I'm and I love writing. I've written one fiction. I was going to ask about that. Is that your children's book? The, yeah, the... yeah, The Chronicles of William Wilder. Tell us about that. Yeah, my oldest son, Mon- Monty, his two middle names are William Wilder. So I just wanted to write a book for him. Basically. Why Wilder? I I get uh, a, a free a free pass on any weird name for the for the the middle names. That what's, was the deal. What's, what's the other one? So Sebastian's his 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 wild card is Huckleberry, oh. which I don't think that's wild, but. Caroline, I had a free pass. I could have, so for Sebastian, it was between Huckleberry or Dragon. Right. Yeah. Caroline was cool with that, man. I told you I won the wife lottery, man. Well done. <laughs> so, Congratulations yeah. on your singular. <laughs> <laughs> so she got the first name. I was happy she could go with whatever first name she wanted, as long as I got a, a little weird third name yeah, so, uh, or second name. So and, yeah, and, and the book itself. So, yeah, I just I wanted to see if I enjoyed writing a fiction book. See if my imagination, A, could do it. B, if I enjoyed going down that rabbit hole of just making things up. And it took a while. It took like one or two chapters to really realize I could do anything. If I wanted him to all of a sudden turn into a giant, it, that doesn't happen in the book. But I could do that. Yeah. Like, and, I, and then all of a sudden I was like, this is the best thing ever. I think people tell themselves stories about like you know I'm, I'm a pragmatist i'm a realist or whatever and then you just realize imagination's a wonderful thing yeah i mean it's, it's it's a real book to be fair um there's a time machine thing in it and that's only at the end yeah other than that it's a fully fully real book that any you could it's based in cuba it's on amazon and i like it it's for, it's it's <laughs> Uh, my publishers were like, dude, no one's going to read this book. It's for 10-year-old boys. They're outside climbing trees. 10-year-old boys don't read. I'm like, I don't care. M- my boy will read it when he's 10. And um, so, yeah, again, it was just um, 
a, a project like a, like a hobby basically mm-hmm. I, I almost treat writing as a hobby because i really love it i really enjoy it i really enjoy all aspects of creating a novel i love the format of a novel mm. in the written form as opposed to a blog post for example or a news article or a, or a newspaper or a magazine i enjoyed writing it i loved working up with the designer on Will the cover be another or? yeah so there's a sequel that was meant to be out like lot two years ago but right. i just not at the time and now the iron 105 book will be the next book mm-hmm. so there's a sequel to that which i saw people can pre-order by the way on my website on your website yeah 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 so go, that, and, go that, and pre-order that and i don't yeah. doubt yeah it's gonna be brilliant and then I'll do the sequel to the William Wilder book, which is called The Adventures of Nora Knight. Uh, and the book's called The Kalahari Queen. So, and it's, it's, it's literally a, the sequel to that. So what happens at the end of the William Wilder book will be the start of the, of the Nora Knight book. And William Wilder will be in, her, in that book as well. There's going to be a third book. And I think it's called Sebastian and the Dragon. So obviously I've done a book for my eldest. I need to do a book for the, the youngest. So, and it might be a slightly younger book, Sebastian and the Dragon, a younger age group, but still a reading book. You know, yeah. a kind of book that maybe I would read to my to Monty now and in bed. So we're talking about like four, five, six. Yeah. So, oh. so yeah, like life's pretty good. So I can't really, I can't complain at all. I get to train most, you know, times of the day that most people are at their desk. Yeah. You know, I, I treat this as a as a job so that I can still be a dad and I do the school run in the morning then I do some exercise in the day and then I go and pick up the kids People at school people annoy you so. with podcasts it's it's been amazing just getting to getting to know you better uh, getting to understand why you do it as I say it's it's endlessly fascinating and I'm not sure people will ever truly understand maybe you'll never truly understand why you feel like putting yourself through that yeah you know it's it's incredible to see, nonetheless. If people want to follow you, where can they find you? Uh, just search my name on the socials, Sean Conway. You'll see a hairy ginger bearded guy there. So, <laughs> yeah. If I can help in any small way <laughs> through this, then you know, well, I'll be, I'll be very, very happy to have. Thank you, mate. Yeah, no. very, very kind. Cheers, Sean. Thank you for your time. Any time, I really, mate. really appreciate it. Yeah, it's awesome. been, it's been really, really cool. Yeah, Thank really you. good. Nice one. Cheers. Mate. What a man. <laughs> what a man what a man no, no, i won't do it to you i won't do it to you cheers sean thank you very very much for inviting me into your man cave uh adorned as it was with memorabilia and trinkets and books and your brag wall as you call it and just it's pretty cool so no thank you really really appreciate that i hope you've enjoyed it and got some measure of the man the enigma that is the ultra endurance athlete. And at 42, Christ, I, I, he's got years left of doing incredible things. So, a privilege, an honor. Thank you very, very much, Sean. Really appreciate you uh, bringing me in. And I don't know, maybe at some point I'll, I'll come and join you on, a, on a, yeah, an Iron Man or two. You know, if you can keep up. <laughs> uh, cheers, everybody, for listening, reviewing. Five star reviews help keep us. Moving up the charts, as I say, we've been doing some of that good charting stuff. So thank you very much. If you've just come to this from Sean's social media and you've not listened to the Starting Line podcast before, hopefully that was a good intro to what we're doing. You can follow us at Starting Line Show on pretty much everything. That's TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook is the Starting Line podcast. What am I missing? Twitter is Starting Line Show without the W. You'll see it. Go ask me questions. 
at some stage. Do you know what I might do is at the intro or outro of the next episode, I might answer some questions or maybe if there are enough, we can dedicate some social media content or an episode even at some stage to it. As I say, this is the episode 10 of a proposed 12 and then we're going to take a break during which we're going to, we are going to be recording episodes in video as well. We've got a great list of people already set. I'm very excited. You can follow Sean at Sean Conway Adventure on Instagram. You can follow him at Conway underscore Sean on Twitter. And he's going to have all the other things as well. Just search Sean Conway and you will find his lovely ginger bearded face. If you want to email us for any reason, that's hello at startinglinepod.com. The website startinglinepod.com. Maybe you've got a question. Maybe you want to sponsor us a million pounds a series. <sighs> Fine. Or maybe you just want to say hey. Thank you again. Until the next time. Have a lovely week. Speak soon.